Welcome new and old friends. My name is 242, and today 42 decided we should make a compilation. This will make it so I have more time to focus on getting ready for Halloween week. So we start at Horror Stories Volume 41 and end at the latest, which is Horror Stories Volume 47. This way you have something longer to listen to while you study, work, or anything else you might be doing. Please remember to leave a review on any podcast platform that lets you, and share it with anyone who might like this. I also want to mention before we start that three people left me a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Spy Fox B said, Amazing storytelling voice, and a great choice in story. I recommend to all podcast listeners. Thank you guys so much. Now, with all that out of the way... Turn off your lights. Make sure your doors and windows are locked. Things are about to get spooky. Into the Labyrinth by Sean E. Britton With a thud, something hammered against the wall blocking the labyrinth's entrance. Bricks cracked and dust shifted from the ceiling. Another thud and another... The rocks, paste holding the bricks together, crumbled. Several bricks collapsed and fell inwards. Shafts of sunlight, the first the labyrinth had seen in years, knifed through the Stygian darkness. An iron-headed battering ram broke through the remaining bricks, and a couple of men attacked the gap with hammers until it was large enough for their group to pass through. Alexios, the man in charge, moved through the opening first and scanned their surroundings. The sunlight didn't reach very deep. Dusty, the walls were made of stone with mural carvings into their surfaces. After a short hallway, the labyrinth immediately branched left and right. It's open, Alexios said. Bring the torches. The men, eight of them, were mercenaries and tomb raiders, not soldiers. As such, their gear was haphazard and not uniformed. A mixture of beaten brass and scuffed leather, boots or sandals. All the men carried different packs and different weapons depending on their own preferences. Alexis had a short sword and a long, thin dagger on his belt. His second-in-command, Draken, was shorter and sinewy, and carried a long spear. A couple of brawnier men equipped themselves with heavy war hammers. Draken took a pull his flask he carried on his belt. This is not a place you want to get caught in the dark. That's why everyone has their own torches and plenty of fuel. Just hope it's worth it. You know the rumors as well as I. The king's hoard of gold and silver and jewels hidden somewhere down here in the dark. If a tenth of the stories are true, we'll all be rich men. The stories I've heard are of an unsolvable labyrinth, a monster roaming the internal darkness, and a lot of dead innocents. Everyone knows the story, Dracon. Not everyone knows about the rumors of treasure. Decades ago, the now dead king of this island had a wife who fell in love with a white bull. She had an inventor create a wooden cow which she could fit inside in order to consummate that love. It was all very aristocratic. The result of their union was the Minotaur, a hawking horned mistrosity 
that was half man, half bull, and ate human flesh. Rather than kill the beast, a labyrinth was built to contain it. This labyrinth. And every year, seven young men and seven maidens, tributes, were sent into the maze to perish and feed the Minotaur. The sacrifices went on for years. No one ever returned. A few years ago, though, a champion smuggled himself in among the tributes. With the assistance from the king's daughter, he killed the Minotaur and escaped the maze. With the Minotaur dead, and soon the king as well, the labyrinth had been walled up and abandoned. As far as Alexius was aware, the dead Minotaur and sacrificed youths were walled up with it. But rumors persisted that the labyrinth served more than one purpose. That, fearing an eventual uprising, the king had stored a massive hall from his treasury in the labyrinth, where it be protected by his adoptive son. All the men lit torches, orange blazes illuminating the stone wall and the murals that served as a warning of what once laid ahead. The air was stale but breathable. One of the men jostled to the front of the pack, a stocky man named Solfus, studying a scroll of tan leather. Sketched on the scroll was an extremely rare map of the labyrinth itself. Set out in numerous circles, it contained rings within rings within rings. Lines branched and looped and doubled back on themselves, many ending in dead ends. Even with torches, one could easily lose themselves for days within the maze. In darkness, it would be inescapable. Which way do we go to start? Sophus had spent many hours already mapping the route. To the right to begin. Alexis and Darkin followed Sophus into the maze with the others trailing behind them. The walls along the outside edge of the labyrinth curved gently. The glow of the sunlight rapidly shrank away behind them. The men could only travel in single file with their weapons, armor, and torches. All the passages and doorways looked identical. Earth and stone closed in on them overhead. Alexios could feel the weight of all that rock pressing down on them, pressing them in. Claustrophobic. Like being buried alive. Nothing stirred within the labyrinth, and everything was totally silent. At least, until Hesiod started to sing. Well, the girls from Aegina, none could be finer. And you'll never go wrong in Eretria. Hesiod's voice boomed through the enclosed space. And the ladies from Sparta, you know they try harder to compete with all of the men. Hesiod walked at the back of the pack, a large muscular man with a warhammer propped over his shoulder. He constantly sang or hummed or whistled in times like this. Still, it caused the others to jump, startled. Would you shut the hells up? Firo said, the second hammer wielder. Another big but foul-tempered man noted by his shock of dark red hair. Silence back there! Sophos needs to concentrate unless you want to wander these stone halls until all our lights go out. 
Hesiod relented, but he could be heard humming under his breath. Pyrrhus looked tense, and he wasn't the only one. Sophus, for his part, barely acknowledged them. Left here. They hadn't been traveling long when they came across the first skeleton. Alexis bent over to inspect it. All the clothes and flesh had long since rotted away. The skull was smashed as if from an enormous blow. Bones laid scattered around the passage. Some of the bones are missing. Looks like they are pulled to pieces. The Minotaur ate human flesh. The sacrifices. Alexis went to pick up the top half of the skull. A squirming, fury body tremored out of the back of it. Disturbed, the rat regarded them with terror. It took off down the labyrinth ahead of them, squeaking until it disappeared into the darkness. I thought nothing could get in here, or out. I guess rats can always find a way. Every once in a while, the maze would come to an intersection in a round room. These were just wide enough for the eight men to stand in a circle, unlike the corridors where they had to walk in single file. Doorways led off in various directions from the intersections. Everywhere Sophus went, they passed doorways into other passages, as well as moved around bends and corners. Sophus kept them from running into dead ends. At a couple of points, they found water leaking through the roof. It seeped from the stone and ran down the walls. Alexis tasted and found it was fresh. With all the twists and turns, the endless circling, it was impossible to picture where they were in relations to the geography above ground. There must have been a lake or a pond or a river above them that slowly wormed its way through the soil and rock. In the lightless world of the labyrinth, the fresh water fed some kind of thick, spongy moss and masses of fungi. Alexis could see sections had been gnawed on, no doubt by rats. Water pooled in places and then seeped away. <sighs> How big is this damn thing? Another one of the men, Theo, complained. We've been walking here for what feels like hours. We must pass through the very center of the labyrinth before we can reach the other side, where the king's treasure is supposedly stored, Sophus said. Theo wore a long sword down his spine, long, dark hair tied off, round alongside the weapon. Scratching at his neck with his free hand, the other occupied by his torch, the cell sword looked nervous. I feel eyes watching us. From the walls. From all these damned doorways. A few others laughed, but largely to dispel their own fear. Regardless of whether they felt they were being watched by anything more than rats, the labyrinth was oppressive. An endless tomb full of doorways and tunnels. Alexis saw another broken skull laying against one of the walls, looking practically ancient. Eventually, under Sulfus' direction, the eight of them reached the very center of the labyrinth. Time stretched and snapped under the earth, against all the sameness, but the walk had taken hours. Much like the other intersections, the center was another circular room, but much, much larger, with a dome roof. A dozen empty doorways ringed around the room. This is it, the heart of the labyrinth, home of the Minotaur. Home indeed, 
numerous pieces of oversized furniture gnawed the cavern. More skeletons occupied the space as well. Skulls smashed and bones snapped open to give access to the marrow. Scores of them had been swept to the side of the room. And then, in the middle of the room, Alexos found it. Ah, look. The skeleton of the Minotaur itself. Alexos said. Although the fur and flesh had rotten away, the bones were recognizable of those of the Minotaur. Largely complete, it was noticeably bigger than any human skeleton. The creature must have been over eight feet tall and huge. It would have had to move through the labyrinth, halls stomping over, squeezing through the passages. But it would have been inescapable in them too. Totally impossible to get past. Its rib cage, its arms and pelvis looked human, if overly large, but its legs ended in bony hooves and its head was especially huge and disformed. A bull skull with massive carved horns, but with the teeth of a predator. All this built to contain it, but it died and rotted like anything else. What are those marks on the bones? The Minotaur skeleton was mostly in one piece, but various markings covered the bones, pitting and scraping. Alexis looked closer in the firelight. Dark stains covered the stone floor under the skeleton. They look like teeth marks. Must have been the rats. They look a little big for rats. I claim the head. It would look wonderful above my hearth. They decided to rest in the center and recuperate before continuing on the second half of the maze. Cruz broke up some furniture to make a fire. Hesiod sang to himself. Dragon sat down heavily and took a pull from one of his flasks. The others drank from water or wineskins and ate salted meat from their packs along with Typhon. The group's cook tried to prepare something better. You're telling me you don't feel it? Theo said. Something is in here. Watching us. Shut up, Theo. You damn coward. Piero said. Alexius ignored them both. Theo's words and the endless passage of the labyrinth itself were working on all their minds. No fresh air, no sunlight. The dark and the weight and the silence. Smoke started to fill the dome space. It eddied and the torches sometimes moved and snapped. Curious as there was no breeze inside the buried maze, unless bodies in motion might push air in front of them, slipping through the corridors and becoming tiny currents. Alexos looked towards one of the doorways orbiting the center space and thought he saw movement. A glimmer of white, pale as a fish's belly or a clean sheet. That was only there for a split second and then it vanished back into oblivion. Seeing ghosts? Draken wandered over and seemed to read something in his leader's expression. Ghosts, yes, must be. The ghosts of all those sons and daughters, fed into this maze, fed to this beast. Within the labyrinth, no sense of night and day existed. No set mealtimes, no time to rest. Alexos gave his men what he thought would be a sufficient time, and then told them to pack up and get moving again. They left the fire to burn, as there was nowhere for it to spread. 
Some fixed and relit their torches. Sophus had never put down his map and led the way to one particular doorway. Theo looked hesitant about going any further, but didn't protest. Humming and whistling and occasionally singing to himself, Hesia took up a position at the rear, having roped the Minotaur's skull to his pack. Alexos carried it along with the rest of his equipment. The horns swung from side to side, occasionally scraping the stone walls. Left, right, left, left, right. Sophus guided them down one of the passages. They passed numerous other doorways and dead ends, and numerous bones. They hadn't been moving long, however, when they came to a sudden stop. The dead end didn't appear because of a mistake in Sophus' navigation, but instead due to a collapse in the ceiling, with rubble clinging to the passage. What is this? Alexo said. Looks like part of the ceiling has fallen, Sophus said. I will have to figure out a way around this. The stocky man studied his scroll again by firelight. They should only need a short diversion to get them around the collapse, but in a maze as complicated as the labyrinth, Sophus took no chances. He carefully marked the new route. Backtracking for a few minutes, they continued along the other path, but it wasn't long before they came to another blockade. More rumble, Alexos said. Perhaps this part of the labyrinth collapsed. But this place was built to last a hundred years. Sophus said, sounding disturbed. Could we dig our way through? Draken asked. No. No, if it has collapsed, then digging could cause more of the roof to fall in. I'll find another way. The eight of them backtracked again, turned around awkwardly. Sophus, Alexos, and Draken moved again to the front, while Hesiod remained at the back. They had to return almost all the way to the center, according to Sophus, and would have to go a long way around to reach the far side of the labyrinth. While you live, shine, have no grief at all. Hesiod sang to himself, his voice carrying through the stone walls. Life exists only for a short while, and time demands its toll. Hells, would you shut your stupid mouth, Hesiod? Piero snapped. To their surprise, Hesiod went silent with no argument, nor did he continue to whistle or hum. The others shuffled along, listening to their own scraping feet, the crackling of the flames, and their breathing. Finally, one of the men, Timotheus, glanced back. Hey, hey, stop! Where has Hesiod gone? Timotheus said. What are you talking about? Hesiod is gone. He was right behind me. The seven of them went up and down the line. Hesiod had disappeared. Big as he was, he, his equipment... His torch had all vanished in total silence, without any of them noticing. Hesioid! Hesioid! If this is some kind of jest, then none of us are amused! Alexo shouted. We'll have to find him. Dracon said. We can't split up. Sophus warned them. Alexos and Draco squeezed past the other. Alexo lightly touched the palm of his sword. Undeniable fear etched itself on all the men's faces. 
even Peros, as he grunted something about Hesed playing pranks. Moving carefully, they backtracked through the maze once more. Using torches, they checked around corners and through doorways. Eventually, Alexios found a dark streak along one of the walls. It looked black in the firelight. Alexios tested it with his finger, finding it wet, and brought the finger to his face. It's blood. Fresh. Alexios said. There's something in here with us. Dracon said. I told you! I told you we were being watched! Theo said. Stow it. He's yours? Pios yelled. He's yours! Show yourself! Pyrrho's cries echoed away into the warren of the corridors, unanswered. They fanned out, weapons ready and torch raised. Sophus hanged back, holding the map. He's yours! Don't lose the path! Anything? Alexius shouted. Nothing! Timotheus, the man who first noted Hesiod's absence, shouted back. They reconvened in the corridor with Sophus, heads shook angrily. None of them had found any sign of Hesiod. Alexis' eyes scanned the group in a flickering light and immediately noticed something. Where's Timotheus? Alexius said. What? Pyrrho said, and they all looked around themselves. Timotheus! Where is he? Alexius' voice rose. Timotheus! Timotheus! By the gods. Sophus muttered. Again, the six of them spread along the tunnel to search for Timotheus. No one went off alone this time, however. They all stayed in with sight of the others. A potent mix of fear and important rage swelled through the group. Finally, they spotted an orange glow that didn't belong to one of their own torches down one of the stone passageways. Alexos and Dracon went to check it out and found another torch laying on the ground, still burning. There were no other signs of violence or struggle. Just beyond was one of the round, four-way intersections. Is it Timotheo's torch? Dracon asked. It must be. Alexios said. Alexios recovered the torch and returned to the others. The men were dead, or unrecoverable. Assuming they had been taken by someone or something that actually knew the maze, they could be anywhere by now. Keep going. Back this way. Huddled together, they moved down the passage. They were sure to watch their backs and to keep their weapons raised at every side branch. Soon, they came to another pile of rubble that blocked their progress. No. No. This wasn't here before. This is the way we came. Sophus said. That's it. Let's get back to the labyrinth center. At least there's no way to sneak up on us there. Sophus quickly plotted a route. They didn't run into any more blockage or trouble on their way back. But now, like Theo... Alexis could feel them being watched. He glimpsed pale flashes of white far back in the shadows in some passages. He resisted the urge to go after them. They came across no sign of the missing two men. When they reached the dome's center of the labyrinth, nothing had changed. 
embers burning low on the fire they left behind. Smoke stained the air. Get that fire started again. Save the torches and burn whatever you can. Pyrrhos and Typhon grew the fire again. The six of them fan out, watching the doorways. A dozen of them ringed the space, however, all alike and empty as the sockets of the skull scattered throughout the room. What is it? The Minotaur is dead. What took them? I don't know. Something else has taken over down here. Alexos pulled his pack off and stared at the horned skull he had strapped to it. How could anything survive? The water leaking from the ceiling in some places. The fungi. Maybe eating the rats, if it's good enough at hunting in the dark. And now it's hunting us. So it would seem. The others joined them on the side of the fire. What are we going to do? Pyro said. Are we still going after the treasure? Treasure? We don't even know if there is a treasure. Theo said. But we know they are out there. Whatever it took Hesiod and Timotheus. We wait here. Recover our breath and see if this thing or things attack us. If not, we retreat to the entrance. We don't know what we're up against. We could only go for the treasure with more men. More swords. The six of them extinguished their torches and rewrapped the heads. They grew the fire in the center of the room into a blaze, but there was only so much of the Minotaur's furniture to burn. They should have plenty of fuel for the torches to get them back to the entrance. But that assumed they didn't run into any more blockades. Sophus ran over his scrolls, looked for potential alternate routes in the spiderweb of lines. They're watching. They're watching. Soon, flames across the ashes of the broken furniture gutted low. Only one of the seven torches was lit. Sophus held it over his scroll. Alexos and the rest of the men began to get anxious to move again. Suddenly, Pyros started. Over there. Over there. I saw one of them. Pyros ran towards one of the identical doorways. Alexos, Dracon, and Theo followed him. Alexos only saw a glimpse of white returning into the shadows. Wait! Wait! Don't! Follow it! Alexos commanded. What was it? What did it look like? Dracon asked. A man. It looked like a man, but all white, with black eyes. Suddenly, a strange cry came from behind them. A shadow alarm came from Sophus as well. Alexos and the others spun. Three creatures had emerged from one of the doorways and snatched Typhon. The one Pyros had seen was merely a distraction. While most of the men crossed the room, the creatures had emerged and grabbed the first man they saw. Typhon fought back, but two of the creatures wrapped themselves around his brawly arms. The other, wrapped around his waist, ramming some kind of ivory knife or peeling to Typhon's side to avoid his armor. Blood gushed over his hip. He thrashed and fought, but to no avail. 
The trio of pale creatures dragged him towards the doorway. Alexos, Dracon, and the other pair stampede towards them, but they disappeared into the darkness. If the men followed, they'd quickly be lost and on equal footing with the creatures. Torches! Torches! Grab them! With a short sword in one hand, Alexos scooped up one of the torches and jammed it into the remains of the fire. It quickly ignited and the others did the same as they swarmed towards the doorway. What were those things? As Pyrus had said, the creatures looked human. Of the three that grabbed Typhon, two had been men, while one looked like a young woman. But they had been naked, and their skin had been as pale as fish bellies. Their bodies looked wasted and warped, all bone and sinewy muscle, not a speck of meat on them. Their hair was stringy and looked as if it had fallen out in patches and the expression on their face had been animal. No humanity whatsoever. Move together. Don't get separated. Typhon's blood splattered the floor, giving them a trail to follow. Alexos took the lead. They heard nothing except their own heavy breathing and pounding hearts. Typhon's cries had already been silenced. The labyrinth seemed eerily quiet. I've lost it all. I've lost the trail. Alexos said, sweeping his torch around. One of the creatures screeched out of the passages to Alexos's left. Teeth were bared in a feral scream. It was one of those males and carried some sort of weapon. Alexos brought his short sword around. The creatures seemed to be alone attacking four of them even though they were all armored and armed and it was totally naked. But then the four of them couldn't fight together in narrow passage. Alexo struggled to even bring his sword to bear quickly in the confined space. The creature lung and Alexos threw himself backwards. Its weapon wasn't so much a knife or a sword but a jagged spike. A leg bone, Alexis realized as it cleaved past his face, which had been snapped and sharpened in a primitive weapon by being rung along the rough stone. Alexis batted it away with the side of his sword. Alexis flung his other hand around, clutching the torch and shoving it into the creature's face. Its eyes were large and deep, savage lines etched into its face. In spite of all that, it didn't look that old. The underground creature recoiled as if burned and threw one arm over its eyes, screeching. The creature retreated back down the corridor into the shadow and disappeared around another corner. Alexa started after them, but was distracted by a cry behind him. Uh-huh. They got me! They got me! Theo yelled. Three creatures had swarmed from the side passage and knocked Theo to the ground. They dragged him towards another doorway into darkness. Pyro struggled to bring his hammer around in the small space. Dracon, behind Pyros, shot forward with his spear and harpooned one of the male creatures in the side. 
It released Theo and withered away, blood splurting from under its ribs. Help! The others crawled towards Theo with torches and weapons raised. The creatures abandoned their victim, although one of them tore away Theo's pack. After them! No, no! Back to the maze's center! The four men barreled back down the hallway towards the center room. Fortunately, Sophus, in spite of being left alone in the big room, hadn't been attacked. He watched and waited for them nervously. Theo stumbled and fell, clutching his sword. What's happening? Where are they? Sophus asked. They're everywhere in here! What are they? Alexos realized where the creatures had come from with a jolt. He looked around the room at the bones and the headless skeleton the Minotaur itself. By the gods, the tributes, the young men and women fed to the Minotaur. They were left here after the Minotaur was killed and walled up inside. Alexos couldn't imagine what it had been like. Once their torches went out, they would have been trapped in endless blackness. It was incredible they survived at all. They must have found those places where fresh water trickled in from the ceiling, finding enough to drink and eat the moss and fungi. They hunted for rats. Alexis remembered the tooth marks on the Minotaur's bones. The dead monster was probably one of the first meals they came across when walled inside and it kept them alive long enough to adjust as they stripped down to the bones. They were still intelligent. They could plan, strategize, and clearly they knew the maze better than the mercenaries. But in the years in the labyrinth, starving in the dark, they'd gone insane and completely savage. They saw the intruders only as meat instead of a potential rescue. Several of them, the tributes, swarmed from the surrounding doorways, naked, pale from years of sunlessness, and all sinewy and bone. There was little difference between the men and the women. Only the sunken husks of breasts or cock and balls slapping between bony thighs told them apart. They carried weapons made from bones and ropes that appeared to be wound from scraps of their own clothing knotted together. Stay together. Protect Sophos and the map. Without them, we don't get out of here. The five of them gathered near the dying fire, hands occupied with torches and weapons. Alexis counted eight tributes, mostly men. With their primitive weapons and no armor, they shouldn't have stood a chance against Alexos's men. And yet, they attacked with wild abandon. Bone spikes stabbed and slashed at Alexos and the others. They glanced off brass and leather armor or were turned aside by more sophisticated weapons. Alexos sliced one of the tributes across the shoulder, but they didn't seem to feel pain. Pyros got one of them, taking his warhammer in two hands. He swung it around in a wide arc. The head caught one of the tributes in the chest. 
Ribs cracked and popped, and the boy was picked up off his feet. Flung backwards, they landed on their spine, rolling and spitting blood. Others shrieked, and one of them stabbed Pyrus in the arm. He bellowed and tried to shake them off. Another tribute crashed into Theo, opening a gash in the side of his neck, but missed the artery. Dracon speared one, a young woman, in the chest as she went down, thrashing. The torches! Use the light! They swung the torches around, shoving them towards the tributes. Blinded, the tributes retreated towards the doorways while covering their faces. A couple of them grabbed the one that Pyros had dropped and dragged them away as well. Pyros and Theo covered their wounds. Go! Let's go! Let's move! Sopos, which way? Uh, uh, this way. That's the doorway. Stay together! Protect Sopos! Bleeding and terrified, the five of them rushed back into the labyrinth. Alexos felt no reason to believe the tributes would simply abandon the chase. They had to get out of there as fast as possible. All of them carried torches and weapons, and they watched their backs and moved as one. Sophus poured over his map every step of the way. This way. No. No. This way. Get it right. There's no room for error. They're watching. They're still watching. Pyrus wound a bandage around his bleeding forearm. Theo also starched the bleeding on his neck. They hurried down passageways, breathing the stale air heavily. Sophus guided them along his map, along the thin cords of black lines. What about the others? They're dead. Or, if they're not already, we'd never find them. They're sellswards. We all are. They knew the way of it. The five of them moved for almost an hour, although time was hard to tell the labyrinth. Sophus seemed to gain confidence as the map conformed to his expectations. Alexo started to think the tributes only struck in one half of the maze, although technically their path did circle back and forth all over the labyrinth. In any case, their guard began to lapse. Suddenly, Theo screamed. They just passed through a round intersection where their pursuers set another trap. Theo was at the back, and the three tributes emerged and hooked him. One, a woman, climbed his back and slammed a sharpened arm bone into the man's throat. His cries turned wet and ragged. Blood spurted from his wound and spooming from his mouth. The woman tribute dropped back, and all three dragged Theo into a tunnel, into darkness, as he dropped his torch. Damn animals. No! Don't follow! Pyro ignored them and crashed after Theo and the tributes. Alexos and Dracon reluctantly followed with Sophus at their back. Inside the passage, however, the tunnel immediately divided into different directions. More doorways branched away, overwhelming their options. Pyros! 
Pyrus's voice echoed down the passages, the way noises bounced off the stone it was impossible to track. They could hear Pyrus's yelling and the sound of battle. The man screamed, obviously pain in his cry. Suddenly, Sophus yelled in alarm from the passage behind them. Alexos and Dracon turned around to see another couple of tributes hauling the man backwards. One of his fists bunched tightly around the map of the labyrinth. No! Get off him! Alexos and Dracon followed, but another two tributes appeared from the side passage. Savage snarls bared their teeth, both presenting weapons of sharpened bone. With a roar, Alexos flung himself to meet them. He couldn't let them get away with Sophus. Their lives depended on it. Without the map, they could wander the labyrinth for days with those once-human monsters on their tails and never find the way out. Fortunately, his short sword was ideal for fighting in tight confinements. He hacked and slashed, ripping into the first of the two tributes. While pain didn't seem to affect them in the same way, they still retreated under the barrage of sword blows. The second tribute lunged with its sharpened bone. The point caught Alexis in the side of the head, cutting through his scalp. Blood pouring through his hair and down his neck. Dracon trailed behind him, though, and shot forward with his spear. The spearhead drilled the tribute in the throat, blood bursting from the wound. Both the pale, blood-soaked creatures fell forward. After Sophos! After him! Alexos and Dracon hurled over the two bodies, blocking the hallway as they died. Up ahead, they could hear Sophus yelling and struggling. Once again, echoes made him difficult to track. How many of them do you think there are? No more than 14, right? Seven boys and seven girls were last released into the maze when the Minotaur was killed. We've killed what? Four of them? And surely not all of them have survived. Unless some of them live from previous years. Aborting the Minotaur. Maybe the Minotaur was already dead. And what really got people were these things. Living all this time in the dark. Alexos kept his torch low, staying the ground. Footprints and scuff marred the dust. That and Sophus' fading voice was all they had to follow. The two men continued to veer through the passages, afraid they lost him. Their torches flickered and snapped. Moving for several minutes, they came to another blockade. But a splattering of blood led them into a side passage. By the gods. Alexios and his second-in-command had followed Sophus and the tributes to a charnel room. A dead end where the tributes had brought some of their victims. Blood painted the stone walls and ran across the floor. Hesiod, Typhon, and Sophus had been dragged there. Sharpened bones bristled from Sophus's chest. The stocky man already dead. Hesiod laid face down a noose of torn cloth around his neck. Typhon had been hacked to pieces. Three tributes, two women and a man hunkered over the bodies with blood smeared over their mouths and chest. One held an arm, 
Typhon's arm, with ragged bites ripped out of the meat. The other had slippery red slabs of flesh as well, all of them feasting. Seeing the men and their torches, they hissed and rose to their feet. Kill them! Kill them! Alexis and Dracon drove in, stabbing and slashing. One of the tributes fell backwards, their face divided down the middle and caved in by Alexis's sword. The tributes had been caught unprepared and were sluggish from their large meals. Alexos and Dracon made short work of all three of them. Damn it all! Alexos knelt over Sophus's body and saw the man's glazed, unseen eyes. Alexos went to pry the map out of Sophus's hands. Something groaned and shifted to his right, however, and made him jump. Typhon was still alive. His eyes opened, wide against the red covering his face. His chest was a gory mess, and both his arms had been severed. The amputations, Alexis realized, had both been tied off to keep him from bleeding out. Better to keep the meat fresh. Typhon rocked forward, alive, terribly aware of what happened to him. Help. Typhon gasped. Help me. By the gods. I'll do it. I'll help him. Dracon stood over Typhon, spear pointed down. No way they were going to get Typhon out of there. All they could do was show him a merciful end. Typhon accepted it, closed his eyes. Dracon placed the point of his spear against Typhon's ruined chest, and carefully, mindfully, he pushed it deep into his ribs while making sure to catch his heart. Alexis peeled the map out of Sophus's hand. After making sure Typhon was dead, Dracon went to withdraw his spear. It caught, and he had to rest a foot against the body's shoulder to brace before he yanked harder. One of the tributes, however, suddenly revealed herself to not be as dead as she appeared. Snarling, she lunged forward with a length of sharpened bone. Look out! The tribute rammed the bone into and right through Dracon's calf muscle. The man bellowed and threw his head back. Alexa swung around with his sword and hacked through the tribute's wrist. Her hand fell away. Alexos drove his sword into the middle of the creature's face, finishing it. Damn it! Dracon ripped his spear free, taking hold of the sharpened bone. He pulled it free as well. Blood poured down his leg, covering his foot. Hold it! Hold it! Alexis and Dracon bounded the wound as best they could, blood rapidly soaking through the binding. Dracon limped, hopped really, the prospect of putting the foot down too painful. He used his spear to support himself. Alexos helped as well, but between his torch, his sword, and the map, he didn't have enough hands. We have to keep moving. The two of them limped back the way they came, Alexos gritting his teeth. They had the map, but Sophus had been the one who knew how to read it. It wasn't complicated, but Alexis only vaguely knew where they were even before they'd gone chasing after Sophus and the tributes. 
When they reached the next intersection, he would have to triangulate them if he could and rediscover the path. Half-human, half-animal shrieked echoed through the maze. Alexos wondered if the tributes had found their dead and come to rage. Dracon dragged himself behind Alexos, leg useless and leaving drops of blood behind them. Nothing looked familiar. Everything looked exactly as it always had. Alexis couldn't figure out where they were on the intricate map, and screams got louder and closer. Leave me alone. I can't make it. No. The both of us. We can make it. No. No. Go on. Holding his spear, Dracon slipped slowly to the ground with his injured leg stretched out in front of him. You can make it, but not with me. Come on. Get up. No! No! Go! Go on! Screams came closer down the passageways, echoing off the walls. Dracon refused to move, so Alexos had no choice but to keep going. He continued to the depths of the labyrinth, clutching the map in one hand and his torch in the other. Slumped against the wall of the passage, Dracon waited, his spear resting beside him. Rooting in his past, Dracon removed one of his flasks, uncapped it, and took a long swallow. Beside him, his torch burned lower and lower. Darkness swallowed more and more of the tunnel. Ghosts moved in the shadows. Eventually, Dracon sensed movement only a few strides away. Raising the flask, he took another long swig, but didn't swallow. He picked up his dying torch. Something hissed. Dracon raised the torch to his lips and spat across the top of it, spraying the contents of his flask into the flame. A boiling fireball filled the confines of the tunnel. An illumination of the nearest tribute, open mouth, dark eyes of four more tributes lurking in the shadows. Screaming, the tribute shielded away and covered their faces. Dracon grabbed his spear and whirled around with his long, thin weapon. His spearhead pinched right through the sunken stomach of one tribute, slicing and emerging from their back. They struggled, thrashed, and the end of Draco's spear snapped off. In spite of his injury, Dracon got his one good leg under him and threw himself at the tributes. The jagged end of his broken spear flashed. He reached for the dagger on his belt as well. Recovering, the tribute shrieked and threw themselves at Dracon with their sharpened bones. Bellows and shrieks filled the tunnel as Dracon's torch was dropped, stomped on, and then guttered and went out. Far along the twists and turns of the labyrinth, Alexos kept moving. Only the crackling of his torch kept him company. He kept stopping and trying to work out where he was on the map. Among the lines, within the lines, within the lines, but every time he thought he had it, he would soon come to another turn that proved he was wrong. The immensity of the labyrinth weighed on Alexos. With Sophus as a guide, even moving for hours, they failed to appreciate the plethora of potential choices on any given path. They had been too focused on the claustrophobic passages. All the sameness had robbed the labyrinth of context. Sophus made it seem straightforward, but navigating for himself, Alexos became overwhelmed by the turns, the doorways, and side passages. 
and intersections heading in all directions. Although he hadn't seen any more signs of tributes or been attacked, Alexos kept moving with increased desperation. Blood dried down the side of his head. Exhaustion burned itself deep in his bones. Alexis' torch burned low, reaching for more binding for fuel. He found his pack empty. No, no. Alexis said. No, no, no! Alexis looked from the torch to the map. If the torch died, he'd be left all alone in the dark, wandering the labyrinth's endless passages until he starved, was killed and eaten, or he became as insane as the tributes. The map was maybe his only key to escape, but only if he could find himself on it, and only if he had the light to read it. If it came to it, he had no choice but to burn it, for light, for just a little more light before the all-encompassing dark. Alexis's breath rasped and he prayed. The light of his torch shrank lower and lower, and the shadows closed in. This story was narrated by 242 and guest narrators. Credit mentioned by appearance. Not all narrators will appear in both parts. Alexos, played by Phoenix Fire. Dracon, played by Limited Stories. Sophus, played by Jimmy Hoare. Hesiod, played by Cajun Cryptid. Pyrrhus, played by Gamma Akatabi. Theo, played by Evil Outcast. Timotheus, played by As the Raven Dreams. Typhon, played by Beaky. Dead in New Orleans by the Lion Dog. I shouldn't have followed him. I know that now. Ben figured because I was in such a bad way, it was his moral obligation to get me jacked up on my 22nd birthday. This is your idea of being jacked up? I spurred around a mouthful of cheap beer. Where in the hell did you find this place? Ben flipped on the high beams on his crap beater and illuminated a field straight out of an L. Roth snuff flick. Row upon row of abandoned double-wide trailers littered the area. I could make out a giant red X sprayed painted over the doors of each trailer. A jattered line of molten lightning ripped the Louisiana sky wide open as a torrent of summer rain battered the windshield. It's a graveyard, Ben said, his face once a placid mask cracked into a reductus grin. Come on, jackass. Ben threw himself out of the car and into the torrential rain with a twelve barely holding together in his hands. I watched Ben splash through the mud and disappear into the first trailer before I could even get out a word about this being a really bad idea. Happy effing birthday to me. I threw myself into the rain with my jacket over my head and into the trailer. Slamming my sodden jacket on the floor, I yelled, What the hell, Ben? But Ben wasn't there. 
Come on, Ben. This is my actual birthday, and you promised to get me jacked up. I yelled into the deserted double wide. The trailer felt deserted, and I swore I saw him run through the door. I looked down at the soaking wet footprints mucking up the inch-thick dust on the floor leading to the back of the rooms. Seriously, Ben, what the hell are we doing here? The thought that I didn't actually know this guy kept nagging at the back of my mind. We had just met at a bar on Bourbon while I was celebrating my 22nd birthday. I must have looked like a sad case drowning my sorrows alone in cheap booze that he sat down and ordered the next round. I told him my sob story. Came down here to celebrate with my girlfriend. She dumped me on bourbon with the words, I never loved you, and pranced away with a stripper named Bambi. This all seemed like a good idea through my alcohol-numbed prefrontal cortex until about five seconds ago. Come on, man, let's get out of here. The idiocy of being stuck in a deserted trailer park in a strange city, driven here in someone else's car, slammed into my quickly sobering up gray matter. A drip, drip, drip cadence off the wall in response. Not just the rain, but a steady pattern from inside what must have been the back bedroom. I walked down the hall and opened the door. Ben was there, laying on a mold-covered mattress, his hand hanging off the side of the bed. Drip, drip, dripping. They left us here, you know. They just painted an X and never came back. Ben said through lips that never moved, I'm just so cold. I stared at Ben's head, flopping to the side, bloated and discolored. His detached hand reached out to me. The last thing I remember was the front door slamming open by a torrential wave of muddy ocean water. It's August in New Orleans, and I'm so very cold. I don't know how long I remember what happened to me. What happened to me? I'm sitting at the same bar on bourbon, nursing piss-warm beer with Ben. My ex-girlfriend and that stripper, Barbie, just stumbled onto the patio. I'm thinking, they want to get jacked up too. Three years ago, the disease was spreading and killing millions. So Dad took us to live in a nuclear bunker in the middle of the Nevada desert. When my brothers and I found an old radio yesterday, we thought we met with static. But to our surprise, there were clear voices discussing the weather. I'm a park ranger at Mount Rainier. People keep going missing, and I think I found out why. By Beatrice Ambaraxis. 25. That is the number of people who have gone missing at the park since the beginning of the year, with nothing being done or said about it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'll lose my job when they find this posting. But I have other things to be scared of at this point, 
and this needs to get out. I'm a wilderness ranger at Mount Rainier. My job is to walk the hundreds of miles of trail and wilderness in the park, looking for problems and helping lost and injured hikers. In the old days, any lost hiker would mean all of us going out together, putting together a search plan and doing our best to get them home safely. Things are different today, ever since the start of 2022. Whenever a person gets reported missing, the family is assured we are on it and will do our best to find them and promise that they will dispatch us to look. As soon as the family is gone, our boss tells us that they'll have to search and rescue company take over. And if we know what's best for our jobs, we should just focus on checking trail conditions and doing the rest of our jobs. And so it's gone on since 2022. At first, there were just a few people missing here and there all over the park. It didn't seem that unusual other than our rangers not being involved in the search. But we figured it was some new policy and shrugged it off. More people started disappearing as the years went on, making all of us wonder what was going on and why it had been made clear to us we should keep our mouths shut. Personally, I figured it was just a combination of bad trail conditions from rough winter, an influx of inexperienced hikers, and the park service trying to avoid looking bad when we needed more funding. Until last Thursday. It was an overcast day, and I was walking along the trail up to the Ipsa Pass in the Carbon River area, humming quietly to myself to pass the time and wondering how far I'd have to go before I have to put on my crampons, when I saw it. Off to the side of the trail, maybe 50 feet into the forest, there was an odd light on the forest floor. At first, I thought the light was just a reflection off the water or some trash someone had left, but as I moved closer, the light didn't fade or change. It just stayed steady. Maybe it was a lost flashlight? I had walked these trail dozens of times and never noticed it before. I knelt down, taking my pack off, and saw the light seemed to be coming from just under the dirt. For some reason, I felt uneasy. I looked around to see if anyone else was nearby on the trail, but saw no one. Shrugging, I reached into the dirt to poke at the light and see what it was. Poking around, I found the corner of a slightly open trap door that was mostly only a foot wide on each side. It was camouflaged nearly perfectly. If it had not been left just barely ajar with light exposed, there was no way anyone would have seen it from the trail. I kept opening it, feeling uneasy, but hoping it was some sort of buried sides monitor, or, at worst, Maybe a hiker's idea of a good place to cache food and water for long tracks. Instead, I found the opening to what appeared to be a small burrow of sorts with an electric camp torch at the corner. I shoved my head down to look inside. The space was small, with enough room for one person if they didn't mind contouring themselves. On the wall of the burrow were dozens of Polaroid photos of people hiking. All the photos seemed to have been taken very low to the ground. The photos were from all over the park, 
many dozens or more miles apart. Most of the photos I didn't recognize, but among them I saw a few that I knew for a fact were hikers that had gone missing over the last year. Then my heart stopped. I saw a photo of me hiking along the Ipsu Pass Trail about half an hour ago. Crack. I heard a twig snap somewhere around me. I took my head out of the burrow and I started running down the trail the way I came. I didn't look back or stop until I got to the wilderness cavern near the Ipsu campground. I locked and barricaded the door and waited till another ranger showed up the next morning, not sleeping a wink. I asked him to walk back along the Ipsu Pass trail with me. He was annoyed that I wouldn't say why, but agreed. We spent an hour looking, but couldn't find any sign of the burrow. I asked for some time off right afterwards, and my manager seemed very suspicious and demanded to know why. I made up some excuse about my family and didn't tell him or anyone else what I saw. For some reason, I knew that telling them would at best end with me losing my job. I don't know who or what made that burrow, but I think it's taking people at Rainier, and for some reason, the government is covering it up. I wish that was the end of the story, but it's not. This afternoon, I saw something glittering from within the air vent on the floor of my kitchen. I thought maybe my cat had stuck another toy in it. I took the grain off the vent to take the toy out. Instead of a cat toy, I found a Polaroid photo, taken low to the ground of me making breakfast this morning. Never acknowledge a stranger in the cemetery, my Nana warned. Because if it's a spirit, you don't want them to know you can see them. If only I remembered her words before greeting the old man at her grave, whose outline now appears in the corner every time I turn off the lights. Brave Emily by Entire Stage 9377 The sun was setting as Emily sorted through her mail. She stopped at an envelope with a picture of a lush forest and the words, Join us on a hiking adventure, written in bold letters. Emily's heart raced as she read the details of the invitation. It was from a group of hikers who were planning to explore the mysterious Lost Woods, a place that was rumored to be cursed. Emily had always been intrigued by the Lost Woods, but she was also scared. She had heard stories of hikers getting lost and never returning, of strange creatures lurking in the trees, and of a ghostly figure that haunted the forest. But the invitation was too tempting to resist. Emily wanted to prove to herself that she was brave enough to face her fears. After some hesitation, she decided to accept the invitation. The date and time were set for the following weekend, and Emily spent the rest of the night researching the Lost Woods, 
trying to learn as much as she could about the dangers that lay ahead. As she drifted off to sleep, she couldn't shake the feeling that she was making a huge mistake. The day of the hike arrived and Emily met up with the other hikers at the entrance of the Lost Woods. There were six of them in total, all strangers to Emily. They introduced themselves and exchanged nervous small talk as they prepared for the trek. The first part of the hike was relatively easy, with the group following a well-worn trail through the dense foliage. Emily marveled at the beauty of the forest and its tall trees and vibrant undergrowth. But as they ventured further into the woods, she began to feel uneasy. The trees grew thicker and more twisted, blocking out the sunlight and casting deeper shadows across the forest floor. Strange noises echoed through the trees, and Emily couldn't shake the feeling that they were being watched. The other hikers seemed to sense it too, as they grew quieter and more tense. Suddenly, they heard a loud cracking sound, and Emily jumped. One of the hikers had stepped on a branch, causing it to snap. They all stopped and looked around nervously, but there was nothing in sight. Let's keep moving, said the group leader, a tall man named Jack. We need to reach the campsite before nightfall. As they continued down the trail, Emily felt a growing sense of dread. The forest was not what she had expected it to be. She couldn't shake the feeling that something was very wrong in the Lost Woods. The group had been hiking for several hours when they realized they had lost a trail. Panic set in as they tried to retrace their steps, but everything looked the same. Emily's heart raced as she thought about being lost in the woods overnight. The other hikers were starting to argue, blaming each other for getting lost. We need to find a place to set up camp, said Jack. We can't keep wandering aimlessly in the dark. Just then, they stumbled upon an old abandoned cabin. It was dilapidated, with boarded-up windows and a sagging roof. But it was better than nothing. Let's stay here for the night, said Jake, and the other hikers reluctantly agreed. As they sailed into the cabin, Emily couldn't help but feel uneasy. The air was thick with the smell of mold, and the floorboards creaked underfoot. She tried to make the best of the situation, setting up her sleeping bag in a corner and pulling out a granola bar to munch on. But as the night wore on, strange things began to happen. The group heard rustling outside the cabin, and they heard eerie whispers in the wind. They started to see strange symbols etched into the wood of the cabin. Symbols that they couldn't identify. Emily tried to brush it off as her imagination, but the feeling of unease only grew stronger. She realized that the Lost Woods were more dangerous than she had ever imagined, and that they might never make it out alive. The night in the cabin was a long, restless one for Emily and the other hikers. Strange noises continued throughout the night, and they all felt like they were being watched. As dawn broke, they were all relieved to see the sun rising 
and to be able to leave the cabin behind. As they resumed their hike, the forest seemed even more sinister than before. The air was thick with mist and they could barely see a few feet in front of them. Emily felt like they were being led in circles, with the same trees and bushes appearing over and over again. The other hikers seemed just as lost and disoriented. Suddenly, they heard a blood-curling scream. They all froze, unsure where it came from. Emily's heart raced as she tried to identify the source of the sound. Then, out of the corner of her eyes, she saw a dark figure moving in the trees. It was fast and elusive, disappearing as quickly as it had appeared. She tried to tell the other hikers, but they brushed it off as her imagination. But the feeling of being watched only grew stronger. Emily felt like they were being followed by an unseen presence, something dark and malevolent that was closing in on them. She knew that they needed to find a way out of the Lost Woods and fast before it was too late. Emily's fears were confirmed when they stumbled upon a clearing in the woods. There they found evidence of a previous campsite, a tattered tent, discarded camp gear, and an abandoned backpack. It was clear that someone else had been lost in the woods, just like they were. As they continued to search the clearing, they heard a low growl coming from the trees. Emily's heart raced as she realized they were being hunted. The unseen presence that had been following them was closing in. The hikers quickly gathered their belongings and started to run, but it was too late. They were surrounded by a group of strange, animal-like creatures. They were about the size of a large dog with matted fur and glowing yellow eyes. Emily's stomach turned as she realized that they were not just animals, but something far more sinister. The creatures started to move in on the group, snarling and snapping their teeth. Emily tried to run, but one of the creatures lunged at her, knocking her to the ground. She screamed as it pinned her down, its hot breath on her face. Just when she thought it was over, she heard a loud gunshot. The creature fell to the ground and Emily looked up to see Jack holding a smoking gun. The other hikers had managed to fend off the other creatures and they quickly fled the clearing. As they ran through the woods, Emily couldn't shake the feeling they were being chased. She knew they needed to find a way out of the lost woods before it was too late. The hikers continued to run through the woods, with the sound of the creatures close behind them. Emily's heart was pounding in her chest as she stumbled through the underbrush, trying to keep up with the group. Suddenly, they came to a stop at the edge of a steep cliff. Emily gasped as she looked down, seeing only jagged rocks far below. There was no way down and no way back. They were trapped. As they tried to catch their breath, Emily noticed that one of the hikers was missing. She looked around frantically, trying to find him in the darkness. That's when she saw him, standing at the edge of the cliff, her eyes blank and unseen. Peter! She screamed, but it was too late. He jumped from the edge of the cliff, plummeting to his death below. The other hikers were in shock, and Emily felt a wave of despair wash over her. They were trapped in the lost woods with no way out, 
and now they had lost one of their own. She knew they needed to find a way to survive, or they would all end up like Peter. As they huddled together, trying to come up with a plan, Emily felt a sense of dread wash over her. She realized they were being watched by something far more dangerous than the creatures in the woods. There was an unseen force, something dark and malevolent, that was driving them towards their own destruction. Emily knew that they needed to make a sacrifice to appease the force that was watching them. It was their only hope of making it out alive. She looked at the other hikers, knowing what she had to do. We need to make a sacrifice, she said. It's the only way we'll survive. The other hikers looked at her in horror, but Emily knew that it was the only way. She would have to offer herself up as a sacrifice, in the hopes that it would appease the dark force that was watching them. With a heavy heart, Emily stepped forward, ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of the group. When Emily stepped forward to make the sacrifice, the other hikers protested. They couldn't bear the thought of losing another member of their group, but Emily was resolute. She knew that it was their only chance of survival. She stepped forward towards the edge of the cliff, ready to jump. But just as she was about to take the leap, she heard a voice calling out to her from the woods. Emily! It was Jake's voice. It sounded urgent. Emily turned around and saw Jake running towards her, holding something in his hands. I found it, he said, holding out a map. The way out of the woods! The other hikers looked at the map in disbelief. It seemed too good to be true, but Emily knew that they had to trust Jack. They had to take a chance. They followed the map, hiking through the woods with renewed hope. As Emily and the other hikers emerged from the woods, they saw that they were at the edge of a small town. They had made it out, but something didn't feel quite right. The air was thick with an eerie stillness, and the town seemed deserted. As they cautiously made their way through the streets, they realized something terrible had happened. The buildings were in ruin, and the streets were littered with debris. It was as if the town had been abandoned for years. Emily felt a sense of dread wash over her. They had escaped the lost woods, but what had they stumbled into? The hikers huddled together, trying to come up with a plan. They knew they couldn't stay in the town for long, but they also knew they couldn't go back into the woods. Suddenly, they heard a faint whispering sound. It seemed to be coming from all around them, but they couldn't make out the words. The sound grew louder and more intense until it was almost deafening. Emily realized they were being summoned by something far more powerful than they had ever encountered before. She knew they had to make a choice, and quickly. They could stay and face whatever was calling to them, or they could flee and hope to find safety elsewhere. As the hikers debated their options, they saw a figure approaching them from the shadows. It was a woman, dressed in tattered clothes, with wild hair and expression of terror on her face. Run! She screamed as she stumbled towards them. You have to get out of here! 
But before she could say anything more, she was pulled back into the darkness by an unseen force. The hikers were frozen in fear, unsure what to do next. As they stood there, paralyzed, the whispering grew louder and more intense. Emily knew that they had to make a decision, and fast. With a heavy heart, she turned to the other hikers and whispered, We have to go back into the woods. They knew it was a dangerous choice, but it seemed like the only option. They turned and ran back towards the lost woods, hoping they would find safety within its steps. As they disappeared into the darkness, the town fell silent once again. The only sound was the faint whispering, calling out for more souls to join its ranks. I watched a movie where a killer hid under a person's car and cut their Achilles tendon with a pair of scissors after they tried to get in the vehicle, completely unaware what was about to happen. I'm actually really curious to see if this would work in real life, but it's getting late and this dude is taking forever to come back. Valley Walker by Max Stixies I always felt a connection to nature, a closeness very few seemed to possess. When I traveled through the valleys, life itself ran through my veins. I knew I was one with the willows hanging over the gentle streams and the damselflies flittering between the reeds. I felt peaceful. Some nights I would stay there among the river, many branches flowing between the mountains, preferring the tranquility there to my village up above. Others tend to avoid me, unless they need medicine. Then I use my knowledge of the local herbs to heal whatever ailed them. But they never thanked me. Not that I need them to. A return to the valleys was sufficient enough to stride through the cooling water, Fish floating pests, search for nymphs. On a night where I could see the stars falling overhead through the gaps in the leaves, I decided I would never leave. That closeness had become too intense to put to rest. I realized that I'm part of nature despite my human birth. Within months, I developed a second skin, the texture and hardness of willow bark. Moss grew upon my back. Ferns between the horns sprouted from my forehead. I gathered nutrition from the soil, no longer requiring human food. Time soon lost all meaning to me. I began to notice their presence, humans dressed in clothes I did not recognize. Laughing, playing, talking. Harmless fun, though it disturbed my peace. I watched them from behind the willow's downy branches, they became a problem when more arrived. Large group of humans, some having the audacity of fish in the valley streams, others hunting for sport with loud weapons. Areas were cleared to make way for log huts so some of them could stay. This angered me greatly. My strength has grown since my mortal years. I've been able to tear through huts, selling new growth on their wrecks. If I spot a human, I bash their skull in. 
I display their corpse upon a dead tree for all the others to see. It does not warn them, and they often try to end me. They present to me no threat, but I fear for my wild kin. I must go where these humans live and end them once and for all. My sister called me again. Her ex texted her 20 times today, apologizing, acknowledging everything he had done to hurt her, promising never to do it again, and wishing her good luck in life. I decided to text my congratulations later, as holding this pistol to his head took more effort than I imagined, and I was about done with him anyway. Welcome new and old friends, my name is 242, and today 42 got us two stories. Our first you've already heard, our second story is, wait, did you hear that? It sounded like a footstep just next to you, but you can't see anyone, you're alone in your room. Maybe... Just maybe, it's something unseen. Unseen by Sean E. Britton You hear feet scraping on the pavement, and you move to make room for them to pass. But when you glance over your shoulder, no one's there. Your feet tangle. The empty sidewalk stymies you for a moment. It's hard to quantify exactly why you feel so puzzled. You only misheard. But it was more than that. The sense that someone was right behind you was so very strong. You could practically feel the weight of their body about to brush past yours. Feel the breeze displaced by their movement on the back of your neck. But no one is standing or walking behind you. A car passes, headlights gleaming, a knot of people laughing, strolling by on the other side of the street. The stillness immediately behind you somehow takes on an unnatural edge, as if the breeze has suddenly dropped or something is blocking it. But you smile and shake your head, wondering what brought on this sudden paranoia. Your shopping bags are heavy, the handles squeeze your hands. You turn and keep moving in the direction of your apartment building. You try to put that weird sensation out of your mind, but as you start walking, you swear you hear someone behind you again. They wait for a moment, but then match your pace almost exactly. You hear the scrape of feet echoing your strides. When you look, though, there's still no one there. The shape of this neighborhood is changing, gentrification. Your apartment building is an old one, but there are new buildings looming, towering over the originals. Some still under construction. This didn't used to be a safe place to walk at night, and some parts of it still don't feel safe, even though they probably are. An old storefront, an alley, a street corner that just feels strained in some way. Little patches of darkness... 
Maybe that's what triggered this unsettling feeling. But they're surrounded by light and safety. There's no reason to be scared. New mixes with old. Cafes and candle stores and a little art gallery. Next to an independent grocery store. Tattoo parlors and clinics. Artificial character mixed in with real, just like the hipsters buy into until they destroy everything about a place that they claim to love. But you like cafes and candle stores and art galleries, so it's hard to complain. The sidewalks and streets are damp. Puddles and mushy garbage collect in the gutters. You hesitate at a street sign, looking both ways. With a hop, you avoid a puddle. Halfway across the street, you hear something splash behind you. You look back and see water rippling in the gutter as if someone had just stepped through it. You can tear to your apartment building, struggling with your keys, the handle, the grocery bags. You make your way inside. The lights in the common area are motion sensor and they flicker to life as you enter. Behind you, the door drifts closed and then it bounces. If you didn't know better, you'd say someone shouldered it open just before it could close. You feel a breeze and hear something that could, could be the pattern of feet on the entryway tiles. But as you twist and turn to identify the source of these anomalies, there's nothing there. The door glides shut. A small patch of shiny on the floor catches your eye. It's a footprint, fresh and perfectly formed as if someone had been walking barefoot on the damp sidewalk and then entered just behind you. The building has no elevators. You carry the shopping up the carpeted stairs. Your heart is racing much too hard to be explained by that little bit of physical exertion. You force a smile. You try to laugh. You're being weird and paranoid, and you try to convince yourself to lighten up. At the door of your apartment, you fumble between your keys and shopping again. You move with exaggerated care and a casual air, like a prisoner in an interrogation room on the mirror's side of one-way glass. The door swings open and you move to block the gap with your body, but something almost seems to give one of your shopping bags a hard yank. A can of cooking spray falls out of the bag and rolls across the landing. Without thinking, you give chase and stop it before it rolls down the stairs. You check the bag for rips, but it's fine. It's unclear how the cooking spray fell free. When you turn back, the door to your apartment is wide open. You enter your apartment and turn on the light. Nothing looks disturbed, but you feel unsettled. It's that kind of feeling you get when someone's been in your room and they've moved a few things around. You can't consciously identify what changed, but you know it in your gut. You live alone in a two-bedroom apartment. You enter directly into the living area, and across the room is a separate kitchen. The bathroom and two bedrooms are down a corridor on the other side of the apartment. Most of the furnishings come from Ikea, but there's a few pieces of art on the wall that you're proud of. You're messy, but not too messy. The apartment is untidy, but not dirty. You hesitate just inside the doorway. Your heart thunders. The door clicks shut behind you. You don't know what to do with your shopping. One of the bags could be used as a weapon. It's heavy, but not that solid. Swinging at someone would probably distract them more than hurt them. 
I know you're in here, you say aloud to a clearly empty apartment. It's a joke, you tell yourself. You're carrying around with no one to hear you being weird anyway. This is the equivalent of thinking as loud as you can, I know you're reading my mind, to a room full of people to see if anyone looks at you funny. But something reacts. You don't see a movement, but across the room a jacket thrown over the back of a chair suddenly falls and drops to the floor. The timing is one hell of a coincidence. It's almost as if someone, surprised by your statement, brushed against the jacket and knocked it loose. Oh, God, you say. A plastic plant on one end of your bookshelf rustles. Something, someone, unseen, you assume moving from the table and across the back of the living room in the direction of the bedrooms. You move in the other direction, still carrying your shopping, You circle the living room and head towards the kitchen. Your legs feel weak, shaky. Your breath rasps as if there's not enough room in your chest. In the kitchen, you hurl the shopping bags onto the counter. Contents spill. Defrosting goods leak moisture. You cross to your kitchen knife block by the sink and withdraw a butcher's blade. With swinging arms and exploratory jabs, you cover enough the kitchen to be assured that it is truly empty. This is insane. This is general mental illness territory. You never had any reason to doubt your own mental acuity before. But actually thinking you're being pursued by some invisible presence because of a couple weird sounds and coincidences? You're being crazy. But what if you're not? What if you unpack your shopping, make something to eat, relax for the evening, And that's exactly what this person, or thing, is waiting for. You stop at the entranceway of your kitchen, blocking it with your body. You feel confident you can turn your back on the kitchen, but the rest of your apartment is an unknown element. Your living space looks unfamiliar and threatening, like a foreign no-man's land. This is crazy, you say, but you're past that. Something, some presence, some invisible thing is in here with you, regardless of how sane that sounds. You have your phone with you. You hold it in one hand and keep the butcher knife in the other. You should call someone, you think. Police? But what will the police do if you call them and tell them you think that someone's in your apartment? They'll come to investigate, of course. There's no doubt they'll do a thorough check. But what happens when you tell them you think the person is still there, they just can't see them? You could leave, but then what? Never come back? How can you ever be sure this invisible stalker isn't there when you return? Hello? Are you there? You ask the empty room. What do you want? Nobody answers. As far as any outside observer would be able to see, you're completely alone. Even you can't trust your own perception. If you leave, if you leave, this is all over. I won't call anyone. I won't tell anyone. Again, for what feels like a long time, nothing happens. And then suddenly your apartment front door swings open as if on its own accord. It gives you a fright and confirms to you with a mix of terror and satisfaction that you're not going crazy. That the invisible presence, person, whatever, really exists. 
The door hangs open for a moment and then drifts closed. You feel a wave of relief. They're gone. But then, the lock on your door ratchets closed. This creature, whatever it is, didn't have a key. The only way it could have locked the door is from the inside. You are trapped in your apartment with an invisible, silent, almost certainly malevolent presence. You don't know what its intentions are, but it has targeted you. It has followed you. It has tricked its way inside, and it's still confident that you can't stop it, even with your knife and phone. Your mind races. You pull bits of movies and television shows featuring invisible villains from your memories. Okay, you want to do it like that? I can do that. You try to keep a brave face, but your heart is thumping against your chest hard enough to hurt. Your breathing feels short. You back into the kitchen. You think of the footprints you saw downstairs on the tiles. It would suggest the presence is human, or at least shaped like one. Just invisible. The fact that it was barefoot suggests, like so many movies or shows, that they could be naked as they're not able to turn their clothes invisible with them. That means they can't be carrying any invisible weapons. There's assumptions, but good ones, you think. They give you some feeling of having a measure of control over the situation. Reversing across the kitchen, you throw the cupboards open, shoving your phone into your pocket, keeping the knife. You grab a bag of flour. It's full, unopened. You bought it after the lockdown baking craze had already passed and never used it. Using the tip of your knife, you slash the top of the bag open. Your hands shaking, but you force them to be steady. Raising the bag, you scatter flour across the kitchen. White powder drifts to the ground, uninterrupted, suggesting the kitchen is empty. You move to the kitchen doorway. With the flour, you can section off the apartment piece by piece. You scatter some more into the area immediately outside the kitchen. Nothing catches in the air or on the ground. If somehow this turns out to all be in your head, you're going to have a lot of a mess to clean up. At the edge of the living room, you spray a wide arc into the air and watch it settle on your bookshelf, your fake plant, the back of your couch, and your carpet. Nothing touches it or disturbs it in any way that looks unnatural. Where are you? You say. Keeping your back to the wall, you circle the living room and scatter more flour. You make it to the front door without finding anything. You double-check the lock. Your invisible stalker is still somewhere in the apartment with you. Moving forward to the bedrooms, you throw more flour ahead of you. It catches on nothing, not even a breeze. The knife handle grows sweaty in your grip. You don't know what you plan to do with it if you actually find this guy. A ghost or a ghoul is one thing. But if this is really some invisible person, a person, you don't know if you can bring yourself to stab someone. Maybe the knife is just to scare them off, or to take a slice at them, but not to kill them unless they try to kill you first. You check the bathroom, scattering flour even inside the shower stall. You close the door behind you. You can't lock it from the outside, but unless you see the door open again, you can consider it clear. You check the smaller bedroom first. It's barely a child's room, really. More like an oversized closet. You fill it with boxes of stuff you've never unpacked or some pieces of extra furniture. 
There's not a lot of floor space. You scatter some flour around anyway, finding nothing, and close the door to it as well. This is kind of like a game, you start to think. Maybe that's exactly what it is to them. The Invisible Stalker. A game. The doorway to your master bedroom looms open, dark inside. The bag of flour is almost empty. With a hand holding the bag, you grope at the light switch and turn it on. Your bed is unmade, and there are clothes splashed across the floor. Nothing looks out of place. You can't feel anything either. You listen for sounds of bodies shifting, for breathing, and hear nothing. Maybe they looped around behind you. You press your back to the door frame and move inside. Something hits you from the side. You cry out. The bag of flour falls out of your hand. Fingers locked around your wrist. You look down and see the impressions of someone's grip on your sleeve, digging into your flesh. But you can't see a hand. You tumble to the floor with someone on top of you. They ram your wrist into the corner of your closet. Another blow dislodges the knife from your grip. An invisible swing sends the knife spinning across the floor. Let go! You yell, surprised you can form actual words. They say nothing, but you can hear them panting, huffing, as they climb on top of you. Invisible hands grab your arms, your shoulders. Without thinking, you lash out. You hit something that isn't there. You see your knuckles crease and your wrists bend. You feel it as your fist lands on empty air. It's hard to work out the shape of their body or where they are at at any moment. They do seem to be human, though. A man, not big, not small, but lean muscles. Strong enough to pin you down when combined with the advantage of you not being able to tell where they are. One of your wrists is still pinned. You reach out with the other hand, clawing at whatever you can find. Something comes to rest in your palm. It's soft, dangling, wrinkled. It's familiar in an intimate sense. The invisible man is staying over you, you realize, not kneeling, hunched over. You bunch your hand into a fist. You rip down. You twist. Finally, you hear a real noise from your attacker. It's not words. It's a strangled cry of oblivious pain. They wrench away out of your grip. They release a hold on your wrist. You see bits of clothing scuffed under invisible feet. Rather than push your luck, you scramble to your feet and out of the room. You swing the door closed again. It doesn't lock from the outside, but it might slow them down. You run back to the kitchen. You leave footprints in the flower across the floor, but you're still wearing shoes and the invisible man is barefoot. You have the phone out of your pocket. Even if the cops think you're crazy, you need their help, but your hands are shaking so badly you can't unlock it. You hear your bedroom door crash open. You hear them crossing the living room, grunting and breathing hard. They still don't speak. Your eyes are to the ground, watching the doorway, the invisible man collecting himself, controlling his breathing, and everything goes silent again. And you wait. You wait for them to make the next move. Puffs of flour suddenly appear and linger in the air just outside the kitchen. They're coming. They realize you can see them, and suddenly they rush the kitchen. You see a perfectly formed footprint smear itself onto the linoleum just inside the kitchen doorway, seemingly unattached to any foot. Your shopping is still laying on the counter. You drop your phone and grab for one of the bags, the cooking spray, 
the same can the Invisible Man pulled out of your groceries to distract you earlier. You knock the cap off of it and fling your arm around just as you feel something hit you again. You aim at where you think the Invisible Man's face would be and push down on the aerosol, cooking oil hisses and coats something only a hand span away. You can hear them cry out, another wordless howl of pain. Oil sticks to something. You can make out features, a face, a fringe of hair, coated in yellowish slick. Then you see hands as well, oil slicking to them as the invisible man reaches up to protect their face. Blinded, visible, they stagger across the kitchen. You return to the kitchen block. You took the biggest knife from it already, leaving it somewhere in your bedroom, but you grab the second biggest. It's long and sharp, just not as thick. You round on the Invisible Man again without thinking. Oil coating his hands and face, the stalker lurches towards you with a wordless yell. You slam the knife forward, and he practically throws himself on top of it. The impact hammers through your arm and into your shoulder. The blade of the knife disappears, just disappears from view. And something wet and hot but invisible coats your hand. You pull the knife back and the blade reappears like magic trick or a prop knife. You jam it forward again, the knife disappears. The invisible man chokes, more hot, wet nothing, splatters your arm and chest, your cheek. You release the knife. It backs away from you, the handle wiggling in midair. Oily, barely visible hands grab the knife and withdraw it instead. The blade reappears and the knife falls to the kitchen floor with a clatter. You feel you should go for it, but you hesitate. Footprints and then puffs of flour retreat away from you. You get a sense of the invisible man, only the oil on his face and the flour on his shins really visible. Crossing the room to the front door, your lock clicks, handle fumbling. You watch the door wrench open. Any sense of the invisible man disappears and the door swings shut. Carefully, you start across the living room. You keep your hands raised, shaking. They feel wet. You return to the front door and lock it. Don't know how long you stand there in shock. Struggling to control your breathing. You wander around the living room and back to the kitchen. Something begins to appear on your hands, on the floor, and some on the furniture. Your hands and clothing are turning red. There's a trail of red splashed from the front door and all the way back to the kitchen. It's heavier in the kitchen mixing with the flour and turning into sludge. Bright red ethereal blood. It coats the kitchen floor and the knife dropped in the middle of it. You look back and see streaks and handprints smeared all over the front door. There's so much of it. You clearly hit something important on one of those blind thrusts. There's more blood than a person can afford to lose. You feel a wave of relief. Something tells you you won't be seeing the invisible man around here anymore. That is, if you ever had to begin with. And a little comment from Sean himself. Not the first story I've written in second person, which is a fun little way of putting a reader in the character's shoes. This one, though, I hope is a little bit more empowering and less insulting than Escape from Allmart. Had the idea of this when I was meeting some people out for the evening in an area of Sydney very similar to the one I described. Once a bit dodgy at night, but now very much gentrified, and just got a sense of someone behind me, but nothing there. Personally, I feel the questions in this one are better off unanswered. 
Where did the Invisible Man come from? What did they want? Are there more of them out there? Is there one in your room with you right now? What was that sound? Did you feel something brush your arm? The man smiled cruelly and nodded when I left him with the naked, innocent young woman and said to clean up the mess when it was over. I wasn't speaking to you, I told him, walking away as he began to scream in terror. Mom... This candy doesn't taste like caramel at all, said the little girl. Don't worry, sweetie. I promise the taste will come soon, but we have to eat them all very fast, said the woman while peeking through the window, watching the soldiers ride into town. My boss had a dark secret he kept in the back rooms. By Michael Whitehouse. About 20 years ago, I used to work for a company in Glasgow that made furniture in an old rundown warehouse by the River Clyde. While I was there, I saw something that has haunted me ever since, and I'm not sure what it was. Maybe you can help me out with that. The workshop was owned by a man named Bill Miller. I was 17 at the time and hadn't gone on well at school. I had almost no qualifications, but Bill gave me a shot at learning how to craft and build wooden furniture. Initially, I hated the idea. It sounded like something an old man should have been doing, not a 17-year-old. But my parents were over the moon that I had at least found work and even a possible trade. The workshop was filled with old machinery way past its prime, and the workshop was far larger than it needed to be. I think at one time Bill's business had prospered when he had employed a large team for decades, but it looked to me like those days were numbered. He now worked on his own. Still, he took me in. I think more than anything, he wanted to pass on skills that were soon going to be lost forever as everything modernized. Bill must have been in his 60s at the time. He was eccentric and used to wear bright colored clothes in his workshop like he thought he was an art teacher. From the first day, I was put off by how happy he always was. I guess I was a bit of an edgelord back then and thought he was past it. I'm ashamed to say that it took me a while to come around to him and see him for what he was, a sweet guy who just wanted to help a kid who had no prospects. For the first few weeks, he shouted me closely and showed me the ropes, teaching me the names of all the tools and what they did. Then he moved me on to the basic tasks I was to repeat over and over. He was always saying, This is how I got my start. Or, In three years, you won't believe what you'll be able to make. He had a strange view of the world, the way he taught carpentry and the other skills, he talked about it like it was secretly so important, and that we, as furniture makers, were sharing in on that secret. That we were creating something new in the world, and were making furniture that would last a hundred years, and bring joy and comfort to people. Who knows who owns some of these pieces in the generations to come? 
He'd say, a twinkle in his eye and a kind grin behind a bushy gray beard. He was so enthusiastic about it all. The first time I saw that smile melt away was the one day when I head to the rear of the warehouse during my lunch break. Bill was up front working on a set of dining chairs. When he was focused like that, he rarely looked up to see what I was doing. I guess I was bored having no one else to talk to, so I decided to explore the building a little. At the rear of the main workshop room, there was a faded, brown wooden door. I had noticed it a few times, though never thought much of it. As I wandered to the back of the large main room, I found myself turning the door handle and going inside. There was a windowless corridor made of red brick that moved off to the left. It was lit by some dull yellow incandescent bulbs overhead. As I stood there, I thought I heard a noise, though I couldn't quite make it out. I started walking towards the end of the corridor, where it turned to the right at a sharp angle. As I did, the noise got a little louder, but I still couldn't put together what it was in my mind. I remember that when I reached the sharp turn, I suddenly realized that Bill was behind me. He nearly made me jump out of my skin. What are you doing? He asked. I never knew his voice could be so blank, so lacking in emotion. I turned and saw that all the happiness that so easily flowed for the man had gone. He had a stern expression like one of my old teachers about to chastise me. I was just looking around. I think I said. Then he told me. You don't need to be here. I've got a problem with a leak and some mold in those back rooms. It's not good to breathe that stuff in. I shrugged my shoulders and walked back into the workshop. Even though Bill seemed tense in a way, I wasn't used to it. I didn't ask about it, and I spent the rest of the afternoon sweeping up the main area in the warehouse. I didn't think much more of it until the following day. I came into work, and Bill was already there. He was whistling away as usual, finishing up on the dining chair set. The air was filled with the strong smell of varnish he was using. Morning, I said. He looked up from his work and smiled. But when I walked past him to go put my bag and coat on the peg on the wall, he cleared his throat like he had something on his mind. I meant to say, I had a good look at those rooms back there after yesterday. He said, pointing to the wind door at the rear of the room. It had been a while since I last checked. It's worse than I thought. The mold, I mean. Spores in the air, I'm sure of it. So, you don't be going in there, okay? I want you to promise me that. Sure. I said. He stared at me. Promise. I nodded. Okay, I promise. I was a little surprised, annoyed even, by his tone, but it was more than that. The door to the back quarters were no longer accessible. Bill wasn't just telling me not to go in there. He had moved an old metal workbench in front of it and then stacked boxes on top of that. I felt like a child being told not to play with matches. It's not like I could have moved those things if I had a few minutes. It wasn't what bothered me. What got under my skin was that Bill clearly didn't trust me. 
He told me not to go back there already, and that should have been enough. But he had taken the time to stack up the things in front of the door like I was going to go down there no matter what he said. I didn't express this, though. I got on with the rest of my work, but throughout the day, I kept looking back at the door with the bench in front of it. It reminded me of the worst times. Two years before, when I was still at school, I had been suspended because the teacher did not believe my side of the story after a fight with another kid. And that sort of thing always stuck in my throat ever since. Not being believed or trusted? Well, I took that as a personal insult. I know it sounds ridiculous now, but I kept thinking that day that Bill was just like the rest. He seemed to notice me looking back over my shoulder a couple times throughout the day, and he grumbled to himself about not being able to put a lock on the door, which I didn't really understand. Despite feeling like I should go back there just to show him, I wasn't going to do that. My parents would have made my life hell if I lost my apprenticeship. And besides, now a few weeks into the job, I was enjoying some of it. There was no hassle. I got a little money out of it, and I even started to think about what it would be like to open my own place like Bill one day. I let the whole thing go, but Bill didn't. Later that afternoon, I was sweeping up again when I heard a loud bang. There was no doubt about where it had come from. I watched as Bill turned and looked at the door. He stared at it for longer than necessary. All the blood had drained from his face, and he looked ill, much older than he usually did. He didn't say anything. He simply walked up to the door and put his hands on the metal bench and boxes, almost as if to see if it was steady enough. You can go home early, he said without looking at me. I was okay with that. Who doesn't like to clock off early? But when I grabbed my things and said goodbye to Bill... He seemed completely preoccupied, like he was mulling something gravely serious over and over in his mind. The next morning, I was getting ready for work when Mom got a phone call from Bill. He said that I wasn't to go in, some problem with the building that he had to sort. So, I took the day off and enjoyed having a bit of spare time to myself. But the next day, I was getting ready again and we got another call from Bill. He told my mom that everything was fine, but that I should take the day off again while he fixed whatever was going on. He kept saying something about the air being bad. This went on for two weeks, and eventually my dad grew frustrated. He thought Bill wanted to get rid of me for some reason, but didn't have the heart to come out and say it. My dad had been in the army when he was younger, and he'd always had the same hardened air about him that you sometimes see in veterans but he also had anger issues boiling away underneath. We rarely got on. I could always tell when he was going to intervene in something because he would get out this black suit that he almost never wore and would spend the evening pressing it and shining his shoes like he was going on a military drill the next day. As sure as clockwork, I woke up in the morning and Bill phoned again to say that I couldn't come in. My dad got dressed in his suit, told me to put my work clothes on, and then we drove down to Bill's warehouse. During the drive, my dad was gritting his teeth, his jaw clenched, and talking bad about Bill. 
He hated when people weren't forthright, and he felt like I was getting the runaround. One thing my dad had was a temper, and it could come at any time. I gotten used to seeing it when it was winding up, ready to explode. I was generally worried about what he was going to say to Bill. Sometimes I wish my dad would stay out of things, but I knew when it was pointless to argue. He was going to let out whatever stress was burning a hole in his stomach no matter what. When we turned up at the warehouse, I could hear one of the circuit saws running inside. That meant Bill was working. Dad opened the door to the warehouse and we stepped inside. Bill didn't notice us at first. He was cutting large sections of timber on the circular saw. My eyes were drawn immediately to the rear of the room. I couldn't believe it. There, in front of the door that led to the back rooms, was now a huge wooden frame. I knew what it was immediately. Bill was constructing some sort of wall. He was literally blocking off the door and the corridors and the rooms beyond it. Though, he hadn't gone much further than the large frame. Bill. I remember my dad shouting over the noise. Well, it went pot then. For the first time that I had ever seen, Bill grew angry. He questioned why we were there and was short with my dad. You need to go. He said walking over to us, waving his hands about trying to usher us out of the door. This was like a red rag to a bull for my dad. He hated anyone trying to tell him what to do. Even more so than me. He started shouting over Bill. And I was kind of ashamed of my dad then. He puffed his chest out. He towered over him. And I could see that my dad was basically trying to physically intimidate the old guy into backing down. Dad, let's go. I remember saying. But he wasn't having any of it. You agreed to train my son. He said in a booming voice. It's been two weeks without work or pay. Two weeks he could have been out there looking for another job. Now you disrespect him and me by cutting him off without even telling us? Why? Bill hesitated then. I'm not cutting him off. I never said that. There's bad air in the building. It isn't safe. I can't have him working here until it is. My dad looked around. I don't see you wearing a mask to protect you from this so-called bad air. There's no smell or mold or anything. What are you doing here? Dad marched past Bill. He always had a way of going overboard and sticking his nose into other people's business. I guess it's where I get my fierce side. I remember Dad walking up to the wooden frame at the back of the room, and Bill jumped in front of him like he was trying to stop something terrible from happening. I won't give you a blow-by-blow -blow account, but things escalated. Bill pushed my dad in the chest, and then my dad started to yell, saying that he was sure Bill was up to something bad. Dad yelled that he was going to look in the back and find out just what the old man was hiding. I know exactly why my dad did that. Whenever my dad would get into a confrontation like that, he tried to find something to get under the other person's skin. It was like whatever the argument was about no longer mattered. 
Now it was only about getting the other person more and more upset. Dad pushed Bill aside and walked up to the wooden frame and climbed through it. Then he put his shoulder into the door and opened it. There's no bad air in here, he said, looking into the red brick corridor before turning back to Bill. You're hiding something, aren't you? What is it? Please don't go in there, Bill said, his voice wavering. I never forget the fear in his eyes. But Dad went inside anyway. Bill tried to stop me, but I felt I had to follow my dad. He'd have accused me of being a turncoat otherwise, so I went in too. Dad marched along the hallway and turned at the corner. I was close behind him and noticed that a couple of the light bulbs on the ceiling seemed to flicker as we passed. There must have been four or five doors to various storage rooms around the corner, and what was probably an old office, going by the faded sign on one of the doors. But there was only one door we headed for, and it was because there was a sound coming from beyond it. The same sound I heard, but now, closer to it, I could tell what it was. We could hear a soft of a muffled voice, like a woman's. He's got someone locked up in there, my dad said loudly. The old pervert. I didn't know what to say. He was right. There was definitely someone in that room, talking like they were gagged or something. It was like the woman couldn't quite get out her words. Dad wasn't going to hang around. He went to the door and opened it. I was behind and looking over his shoulder. My dad was taller than me, so I stretched up to see inside. It was a dusty storeroom, made from the same red bricks as the corridor but with shelves and cardboard boxes strewed around. A single yellow light bulb glistened above it, casting shadows all around. In the middle of the floor was a space, and occupying part of it was a large old wooden chest with what looked like a closed, hinged top. I was taken aback by how tall and wide it was. The top of it was almost as high as my chest. Please leave me alone! I remember Bill shouting from back at the workshop. I guess he was too frightened to go all the way in to where we were. Dad stepped into the room, and I quickly followed. The woman's voice was coming from inside the chest. It was muffled, and it sounded almost like she was choking on water as she tried to speak. There was something about the chest that added to the apprehension building inside of me. I had seen enough of Bill's workmanship to know that he was the one that had made the chest, though it looked to be decades old. Have you ever had a fear that stopped you from doing something? I have, and it was at that moment. I wanted to open the lid, but somehow I knew I shouldn't. My dad had no such hesitation. He reached forward to the chest. I shouted, no! But it was too late. He pulled open on the lid and it creaked open. There was a horrible stench like sewage, and I could see that the chest was filled to the brim with a viscous black liquid. On the top surface was a thick film that looked like congealed wax or fat. This bobbed around on the top as the liquid quivered. 
My dad stopped and stared at the water as if he couldn't quite comprehend what he was looking at. Something then sprung out of the chest, almost like a jack-in-a-box. It was covered in white cloth and I remember the arms reaching out and grabbing my dad by the throat and hair. It yanked him forward into the chest so that his head and shoulder disappeared into the inky, black liquid contained within. I could hear my dad drowning and screaming under the liquid, his legs and body still dangling out of the chest. I leapt forward and grabbed hold of him, but whatever was in that chest had him in a vice-like grip. It wasn't going to let go anytime soon. I realized in that moment that my dad was going to die if I didn't do something about it. Panicked and feeling helpless, I looked around the room for anything that could save him, but nothing jumped out at me. Then, I finally thought of something. I rushed out of the room and along the red bricked corridor, turning left and then I was through the door back into the dusty workshop. Bill was standing there, white as a sheet. It's got him! I said. It's got my dad! He didn't say anything. He just stood there like a rabbit caught in headlights. I ran and grabbed a heavy rubber mallet we used to knock a large dowel into wood. And then I was off again, down the corridor and back into the room. Dad had stopped moving. His body was limp. All that I could hear now was the sound of the black liquid lapping against him as the cloth-covered hands start to pull the rest of his body inside the chest. I rushed forward and lift the mallet as high as I could and brought it smashing into the side of the chest. The wood was too thick. I smacked it again and again, hoping I could crack that damn thing open, but it was no use. It was only then that someone rushed past me. That won't do it, son. Bill said, holding a large wooden axe in his hands. He stepped up and hit the chest on the right side again and again. Each time it splintered and cracked. Black, festering liquid poured out of those cracks onto the floor, and I watched as Bill carefully made sure none of it touched him. Then there was a garbled scream from the inky water as the surface level now dipped suddenly. I pulled up my dad's lifeless body in that moment. As Bill cracked the entire chest in two, I launched back and I fell to the floor, dad falling on top of me. Looking up, I saw nothing but black liquid draining away on the floor, moving under the doorway, and then it was as if none of it had happened. The floor was bone dry. <laughs> He's drowned. I said, tears in my eyes. No, he hasn't. The old man replied. The water is gone from him, too. Bill came over to my dad, turned him onto the side, and smacked him on the back. Some black fluid spewed from his mouth, and that, too, seemed to unnaturally run out under the door and into the corridor. Then, Bill rolled my dad back over on the ground and carried out CPR. Thankfully, Dad coughed a few times and suddenly opened his eyes. Within a few minutes, we were able to get him onto his feet, bringing him back into the workshop without saying a word. 
Bill made us some coffee and got an old stove going in the corner of the warehouse to keep my old man warm. As I draped a blanket around my dad's shoulders, who now seem older somehow than he'd ever had before, Bill told us only enough to make sure we didn't call the police. As far as I remember, he said something along the lines of, I don't know what that thing is. I found it when I moved into the warehouse. It was kept in an old oil barrel under the floorboards. How did it end up in the chest? I asked, still in shock. I made it for the thing. He replied. One of my apprentices, a few years back, opened the oil drum by accident, and I had a hell of a time getting him out of it when the thing grabbed him. The boy ran out of here immediately. He was never the same. He had a streak of white through his hair after that. My dad said nothing. He just stared at the floor as if looking into a pit that could swallow him up at any time. I realized the oil drum was corroded and could leak at any moment. Bill continued. I was scared that thing would get out and hurt someone else. So, I got the barrel up with a wench and then drained every last drop into that chest I made. Why? My dad started, finally. Why didn't you secure it? I tried. Bill said. You see... The thing, it seems to know when it's locked up. I put a lock on that chest years ago. I even had a lock on the door. But whenever there was a lock, something terrible always followed. Like what? I asked. Bill looked profoundly sad as if thinking about something he wished he could forget. Just trust me when I say, bad things happened. I took the locks off after that. I won't go over it anymore. It's gone now, though, right? Dad asked. Bill shook his head. Whoever put it in the barrow and under the floor meant it to be kept away. Now it's drained into the building, into the ground. It'll be here somewhere. I'll need to shut the whole place up now. I suppose it's been coming for a long time. Serves me right for wanting some company around here. He smiled at me. I felt sorry for him. After that, my dad started to get angry. He'd chew Bill out for putting me in danger by having me work there. I think that's something I'll never really understand. Maybe he wanted the company, as he said, or maybe he was frightened to be alone in that building but couldn't bring himself to move on or close down a lifetime of work. There's not much more I can say about it. I never went back to the warehouse. After floating around for a while, I got a job working and training in the Merchant Navy as an engineer. Life's been good to me for the most part, but I do think about what happened in Bill's old workshop quite often, in fact. I'm not sure I can give you an exact explanation, but I can tell you some things that followed. A few years ago, I started to research the history of the warehouse. I discovered long before Bill owned it, the building was used as a temporary mortuary during the Spanish flu outbreak, when so many died in the city that they had a problem storing people's remains. 
The backlog for cremation and burial were so great that the bodies were decomposing long before they could be embalmed for later funerals. One comment I found in an old newspaper clipping reported about a public outcry when there was a rumor about shortages of the usual chemicals used for preservation resulting in an improvised technique for preserving the dead. One such rumor was the bodies were being kept in a barrel of machine oil. The last thing I'll say is this. Bill shut his workshop down after the chest was broken open and the liquid poured out. I'll never forget what he said about that. Now it's draining into the building, into the ground. It'll be around here somewhere. Bill's body was found at the workshop two years after that. He had apparently been checking on the building after it had been damaged slightly during a storm. Though the cause of death was recorded as unknown, the pathologist left a note that, while Bob Miller's body presented all signs of death by drowning, no water was ever found in his lungs. And credits go to Narrated by 242 Main character played by Phoenix Fire slash Back to Ashes The boss, Bill Miller Shade from Dark Little Voices And the dad, James Not Jake My girl never liked my gifts, so for our 10th anniversary, I simply asked what she wants. To go back to my husband and children, she cried. I have a phobia of elevators. I wish I never tried to conquer this fear. Bye, Nom Nom Nation. I've always had a fear of elevators. I'm not claustrophobic. It's not the small spaces that scare me. My fear is simply being locked in by something beyond my control. I live on the fifth floor of my apartment building, and believe me when I say that my phobia has a daily impact on my life. Going up and down those stairs is tiring, and my friend caught the bad end of last week. I had slept in again, something I do all too often. I heard a ringing beginning in my dream, and as I opened my eyes and drifted back to reality, I realized the sound was coming from my phone. It was Maria. As I answered the phone with a weak hands, I tried to murmur hello, but nothing came out. Hey, I'm in town. You want to meet me? I did want to, but I did not have the energy to go down 105 steps. Yes, I have counted. When you walk them every day, you count them at least one time. My silence spoke for me as she replied, Please don't tell me you're sleeping at 2 p.m. again. Slightly unfair assessment. It was 1.45 p.m. I found my voice again. Hey, sorry. Yeah, I kind of was. Can you meet later? I can't be bothered for the stairs right now. I'm literally finishing in town and was about to head home. It's now or never. Please? I couldn't say no to her when she said it like that. She has a specific tone of saying please that she just knows always works on me. 
I still had that sense of nothing quite feeling real, so I sat up and tried to wake myself a little. Fine, fine. Where are you? Downstairs. We chat on the phone for a few minutes whilst I got ready. We hadn't seen each other for a few weeks, with both of us being busy with university work, so I was actually quite excited. Once ready, I stepped out into the hallway and began my usual routine, making my way to the stairs. I passed the elevators. I do this so often, I don't even think about how much time and energy they could save me. Yet this time, something strange happened. The familiar rumbling of the elevator echoed through the walls as it arrived at my floor. The door opened, spilling the artificial light into the depressingly dim hallway. The gentle, ominous sound of elevator speakers allowed a grainy music to enter an otherwise quiet atmosphere. I could almost make out the song. Almost. I don't know if it was my tiredness or having my friend right at the bottom, but I felt like it was time to face my phobia head on. I think I might try the elevator. Wait, really? Oh my god, I'm so proud of you. I'll be right here at the bottom waiting for you. I stepped into the metal box, doubting myself with every step. Even as my hands reached for G, confirming my destination for the ground floor, I was finding myself to not just run back out. The doors seemed to close slowly, then they opened giving me ample time to change my decision. I stayed. With the doors sealed, so was my fate. I knew I could no longer turn back. Just a warning, the single might out if... So, Maria, hello? The call had ended. I had forgotten that elevators often do that. Not only do they wish to trap you from the outside world physically, but they also mentally. I had no way of communicating with Maria, and I was left with my own thoughts, all of which were negative. I tried to fight the feeling of dread, trying to not even acknowledge the fact that I was in an elevator. It must have been about a minute in that I realized something was wrong. Elevators were not supposed to take this long. The number above the door indicated I was still on the fourth floor but I could feel the elevator moving. Or was that just my anxiety making everything spin? I pressed G again. I don't know how many times I pressed it before switching to the open doors button. Neither seemed to do anything to help my shaky breathing from speeding up. It felt as though the air I was breathing was giving me no oxygen at all, suffocating on nothing. I pressed the emergency button, waiting for a response. For a brief moment, as a man's voice interrupted the music, I felt myself feel more grounded with the earth. Hello? Is everything okay? Despite my panic subsiding, I spoke too fast for him to understand me. What? I tried again. I think the elevator's broken. It's not moving. A few seconds passed, a few seconds longer than I'd like before someone responded to something like that. But I kept taking deep breaths, knowing that he was probably sending somebody out to fix it. 
The next sound from the speaker broke me. It's too late. The music came back to life, unaware of the terror within me, a cheery, happy melody, failing to make me feel anything similar. I pressed every button I could. I tried to call, text, voice chat with Maria. Every action I took felt slow, although I'm sure all of this happened within the span of 10 seconds. At the end of it, I collapsed to the metal ground. I looked up at the number. Three. We had gone down a floor. That was good, I thought, until I felt everything stop. I didn't even realize it was moving until it had stopped. The change in velocity was noticeable. I would have felt relieved if it weren't for the fact that the third floor of this building doesn't exist. At least, if it does, then I'm not sure how to access it. The elevator has no three button, and there are no doors to exit the stairwell on the third floor. Even the exterior of the building, there is a tall blank space on the wall between the windows of the second and fourth floor. The doors open, though they did not free me. They only made my prison larger. Darkness seemed to seep in from the larger, empty room that the elevator had landed on. I stood up and noticed the damp, dusty feeling of the air. I couldn't see the walls of the room, but I could make out the outline of someone at the edge of the darkness. Right where the light met the dark, something was there. I only noticed the music had stopped when the man on the elevator helpline spoke again. I could make out his words between the static and crackles. Perhaps some fears are rational. The longer I stared at the silhouette, the more I seemed to see. It wasn't motionless. It seemed to move slightly up and down. I would say it was breathing if the pattern was more regular. This is more like a grotesque quirking. A dripping sound began as a puddle of liquid emerged from the darkness. Perhaps some fears are... The power went out, and as the light flickered away, the gentle cracking of the speaker vanished. I could hear only my breathing and the dripping. I did not know whether this thing was in front of me or far away from me. I listened as carefully as I could, listening for any kind of footsteps, but the dripping was so irregular that it was impossible to ignore it and let it blend into the background. The darkness seemed thick, like I cut right through it. If I had a knife on me, I'd probably have tried. At least I'd be protecting myself in the process. I didn't know what to expect. Every small movement I made felt like it could be my last. I heard a whirling and the doors closed. I had never felt so relieved to be locked in by something beyond my control. The elevator descended again, and I had a moment to reflect on what had just happened. The lights of the elevator remained off, but the red glow from the display above the door remained. I watched as the numbers blinked from 2 to 1 to G. I was waiting for the doors to open and to be met with the familiar beaming face of Maria. As the light from the lobby poured into the elevator, I saw that the lobby was empty, and as my phone reconnected to the network, I got multiple notifications at once. You're taking a while, is everything okay? Hello, is everything okay? 
I'm going to come upstairs and find you. My hands still shaking, trying their best to type out a reply. Don't take the elevator. As the message failed to send, my dread was all but confirmed. I ran out of the still pitch black elevator, through the lobby and sprinting up the stairs. Maria? I called out to her up the stairway, although even if she had called back, I probably wouldn't have heard her over my panic. Maria? I called out until I reached the third floor. The blank wall of this floor meant something new to me. Once simply a wall with no door was now a barrier, keeping something at bay. Slowly, but as fast as my anxiety would allow, I placed a finger on the wall, then my palm, then my ear. I gently tapped on the wall, and it seemed to echo louder than a normal wall should. I stayed as silent as possible, not even entirely sure what I was listening for. My own heartbeat seemed to grow louder and louder, thumping right through my entire body. My own fingertips moved slightly with every beat as I stayed silent, waiting. Like the creature on the other side, waiting. I almost fell backward as a loud bang echoed. Turning around, I saw that it came from behind me. It was Maria. Oh my god, you look so stressed. It's okay if you couldn't take the elevator in the end. I did take it. I wish I didn't. I briefly explained what I saw, trying to make it sound like reality was difficult. It felt like I was lying to her, when I was simply explaining the very event I had just witnessed. I think she would have laughed if I didn't have tears streaming down my face. She hugged me tightly, so I let my head sink into her shoulders, muffling through my crying. I was able to get out. I thought you were dead. I stayed at Maria's house that night, and the whole week. To my surprise, she seemed to believe everything I told her. She wanted to help me find the truth. She always has been a good friend. I'm truly honored to have someone like her in my life. The first thing we found was the image of the building exterior in 2008. Windows on the third floor. Some open, some closed. Many with plants visible, or cloths hanging out to dry. People lived there some time ago. The next image we could find was 2015. The windows were gone. In those seven years, something happened. The question is simply a matter of what. A local news article from 2012 seemed to hold some answers. Fifteen residents left furious as they were evicted from their homes. It spoke about the apartment buildings and how a leak on the third floor kept coming back. Residents described it as a deep, black, gooey liquid, dripping with an inconstant rhythm. An awful lot like what I had seen. The eviction was temporary at first, while the leak was investigated. But it seemed to slowly transition to something permanent. What piqued my interest is that they specified, We were able to catch up with 14 of those affected. So where's the missing one? After reading through the names of everyone they caught up with and investigating public documents, I found only one resident name that didn't appear in the article, Dr. Victor Moros. He was reported missing shortly after the article was published. 
He had a PhD in psychology, specifically specialized in phobias. I managed to track down a relative of Victor. Their most recent address is the small English countryside town of Sonder. I wanted to talk to them, but I didn't want to be disrespectful. They'll just think I'm crazy. I did visit the apartment lobby yesterday, just to check in on everything. The elevators were out of order. Not that I needed a sign to stop me from using them again anyway. All this seems to link together somehow. I just know it. My wife with final stage Alzheimer's is reminding me each day about her memories of our wonderful trips around the world and how we were in love and passionate. After two months, I stopped reminding her that she was talking about her business trips with her colleague, Mark. I have befriended the monster under my bed, but I can never look at him by collecting apples. I have been living in my new bungalow for over a year now and it's been great to finally have my life back on track after my abusive relationship. I've legally changed my name and even moved across the country. The house is beautiful. It's small, but I don't take up much space, so it's perfect. The garden has a lovely rose bushes and even a lemon tree. Everything about my new house is good, but I'm not exactly alone, and that's why I'm here telling you this. The inside was already furnished and decorated, and I didn't have much with me as I had just fled in an impulse, so I was very happy with that. Walking into my bedroom, I kept hearing a strange noise. I just assumed it was mice, so I purchased some traps and hoped for the best, but it never stopped. I called animal control and exterminators, but they never found anything, so I just ruled it as an old noisy home. Until one night, I was laying in bed reading a book that I bought from a charity shop, and I heard a noise, a scratching noise, and it was coming from under my bed. I put a bookmark inside the book, set it to the bedside table, and began to lean over. Stop! A low, deep voice whispered. I leaned back so hard. I whacked my head against the wall and passed out. The next morning, I woke up and groaned. God, my head was killing me. I really did number on it. Then I remembered. Shuffling out of the sheets, I jumped up out of the bed and looked under, but there was nothing there. Maybe I imagined it. My day went on as normal. I went job hunting. I treated myself to a $6 coffee. I bought some more essentials for the house and then relaxed until bedtime. Nighttime rolled around and I headed to bed. Opening my book, I sighed in content and shimmered deeper into the covers. Then I heard it, the scratching. Hello? I said. Hello, Sarah? A voice responded. Now when I tell you my heart stopped, I mean it. I couldn't breathe. Who the fuck are you? What the fuck are you doing in my house? I yelled frozen to the bed. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I live here, 
he responded. I'm going to call the police. This threat just made it laugh. <laughs> that won't do anything, they said. I sat there for a few minutes, trying to recollect myself, and I began to lean over to have a look. Stop, they whispered. For your own good, I suggest you don't come any closer, he continued. What's that supposed to mean? I asked. I could feel the sweat trickling down my face. I don't want to hurt you, so I suggest you don't look. We talked all night, and that's when I learned he only appears under my bed at night. So that explains why I didn't see him when I looked this morning. He's not a threat. It's like a spirit that's just trapped and can't leave. He's quite friendly, really. Months have passed, and me and Dark have become best friends. I asked him one night what to call him, and he suggested that name, so I obliged. I hear nothing from him during the day, and when I hop into bed, he says hello and asks me about my day. He's a great friend, but if I ever bring someone inside, especially a man, he says he will kill them. I can't stay out too late or he'll get lonely and threaten to kill me for leaving him. I made the mistake one night of getting a little too drunk. Stumbling into the bedroom, I remember giggling again on my knees. Hello, Dark! I squealed. I will regret this decision for the rest of my life. What are you doing? Dark asked. Oh, nothing. I crouched lower, and that's when I heard his violent scream. But then I blacked out. Everything went back to normal after that night. I may have much paler skin and no heartbeat. I may have no job, no life anymore. But I still have dark. Forever and ever. After losing my first baby, I was told that I'd have to have an emergency hysterectomy in order to survive. That was five-something years ago, and today I received an envelope with a CCTV picture of my husband handing over a briefcase to the doctor who saved my life. I can't explain it, but they aren't normal. My individual make change. Have you ever experienced being in public and some creep or crack person noses you and starts grinning at you? I want you to think about it and remember how did that make you feel? What is the color of the walls? He asked in his deep rumbling thunder voice the pace of which was lowering and the volume softening. His voice was the only familiar thing I had at that moment. White. The same boring apartment white that all the American apartment complexes have. I replied as I felt my words getting slightly more stretched out and my voice becoming dry. My eyes started to feel heavier and for a short moment, my head dipped as my awareness shut. I woke up with a jolt a second later. Babe, I'm starting to get really sleepy. I think I'll get some rest and call you tomorrow. I said, trying to sit up so that I didn't fall asleep again. 
Wow, you are the only one feeling sleepy, you know. It's late at night and I'm feeling tired too, but I'm here putting an effort trying to talk to you. He replied from the other end. I felt my irritation rise as I thought to myself, I should have known this is how it would be regardless of the distance between us. This man knew I had just traveled for 16 hours. Listen, I don't have the energy for this right now. This is unreasonable and I really need to sleep, I said. Fine, I'm the dumbass, of course, trying to stay awake for you and talk to you. There was always a moment of silence after his words, and then I cut the call. We had promised each other we would try to be better. A promise we made after every argument we had. I stared at the small room I was in. It looked empty in the spaces that should be full, and clutter in the areas that should be empty. The floor was full of brown cardboard boxes and luggage, one of which was open. I had taken out the bed covers from it. The bed was the only thing set up in the empty room. The shelves and the single table as well as the small closet remained open and empty. I just wanted to sink into the bed and lose myself in the arms of deep slumber for the next few hours. Then I had a sudden pang hit me in my stomach. A few seconds later, and there was another stomach call. Ugh. Hunger pangs, I realized. I ignored it and curled up in bed, hoping to sleep off and eat something the next day. Five minutes passed, then fifteen, then twenty, with me lying in the same position, but sleep was nowhere close. I don't know if it was his words affecting my mood, or the hours of traveling, but my body did a 180 on me, and now I was hungry, thirsty, and unable to sleep. I sat up in bed, an uneasy feeling ran through my body. My thirst made it seem like my throat was a dry well. A hot desert where camels walked with cracked feet from the lack of moisture. Unbalanced, that was what my body and mind felt like. Then a sudden thought entered my head. It was an image flashing in my eyes. A logo bright red in color with yellow bulbs around it. Most definitely a Vegas club design ripoff. Hi Day, the 24-hour supermarket. I saw the sign when I was moving here. It was a grocery store at a very close walkable distance from my new apartment. I looked at my phone, 12.30 a.m., it's kind of late. Actually, is it? It's a college town. Who sleeps that early? And my roommates haven't yet arrived. It's not like I'm disturbing anyone, I thought. But I don't have a car, and I don't know shit about this place. Walking out in an unfamiliar place this late could be a bad idea. As I debated in my head whether or not I should head out... My stomach made a loud sound. I looked down on my stomach. Fuck it, I thought, and I got up from my bed. Wearing the first thing I found in my luggage bag and a small white purse that I crossed on my shoulders, I stepped out. The street lights dimly lit the road that was surrounded by forest. 
In less than ten minutes, I saw the lit-up board and the big building. High day, here I come, I thought. Walking towards the building, I realized there weren't many cars in the parking lot. Three or four cars max. I didn't see anyone outside, and I hurried into the building. Right before I entered the automatic door, I had a sudden feeling of being watched and had the urge to look to my right. I saw someone on my right crouched down behind a bin. A person was wearing a black hoodie and dark green shorts. There wasn't any light near that area, so I couldn't see the person's face. However, I am positive the person slowly raised their head and saw me looking at them. It was a one-second moment, but it instantly changed the pace of my heartbeat. I ran inside the store. The air was chilled inside. The cold made the dryness in my throat feel worse, and I felt the hair on my arms and back raise as a light shiver ran down my spine. The white walls inside seemed large and never-ending. The shelves seemed a little too perfect with their sharp alignment and clean colors. Something fell off about the store. Majorly off, I remember thinking to myself, this was a bad idea. I should have stayed home. I looked around and there seemed to be a good amount of people in the store. When I looked at the different lanes and shelves, they seemed long and made me feel dizzy. The shelves seemed a little too tall, the carts too big, and I felt like a small-sized doll in a playhouse too big for its size. Was everything this big when I entered? If it had been, I hadn't realized it before. I could feel my stomach dip and I started to feel lightheaded. Let me just take what I want quickly since I'm here, check out, and get back out ASAP. I looked up at the signs indicating which items were in which aisles. The signs too seemed large, giving me billboard vibes. It was like the whole different city slash world inside the supermarket, a world where I didn't belong. I couldn't get this man outside the store out of my head. In the time it took me to get my cart closer to where the aisles began, I decided I would Uber my way back home. There was no way I was walking back home. I rushed to find the food or drink section, and every step was giving me a headache. An old lady passed by me with her shopping cart. Slightly bent and wearing a pastel blue blouse with a long white skirt, she had cotton fluff white hair which felt like it was dumped on her head as an afterthought. Her zoned-out face seemed lost in a distance when she suddenly looked at me as our carts came too close. The wrinkling skin on her hanging cheeks stretched out as she smiled, the most exaggerated, psychotic smile I've ever seen. My heart and stomach dipped, and I felt like a child left alone with an unknown, scary adult who are terrifying but seemed completely normal from the outside. I froze for a couple of seconds as I stared at that woman. I could think of nothing, and I felt pure, chilling fear. When I remember her face, 
and still makes me want to piss my pants. I collected myself, trying my best not to scream, and moved my car to side and rushed further. Rushing inside in a random direction, I quickly passed another shopper, a man who must have been in his late 30s, wearing a yellow t-shirt and black shorts with the same expressionless look. That is until our carts came closer and his eyes met mine in an unnaturally quick movement of the neck. The corner of his lips turned upwards and his lips extended into a big, terrifying smile. I let out a short gasp and I started to feel like I was losing more than my balance. But I still managed to somehow move my cart along and started moving faster than is okay in a supermarket. As I rushed and started to pass other shoppers, I realized everyone had a weird expression on their faces. A blank, poker, abnormal, plain face that would turn into a sinister, soulless smile as soon as I made eye contact with them. My feet refused to stop. I abandoned my cart and I started to run like a lunatic trying to find a place that was free of people. The more I ran, the bigger the place seemed to get, and it felt like the number of people just kept increasing. Those smiles were making me want to throw up. My heart was beating so fast, it felt like it would burst. I was running around the store like a madwoman. Tears started to stream down my cheek as people continued to do the sudden neck turn and smile at me. My head started pounding as loud as my heart and my breath started to get quicker. I started struggling to breathe. I ran to an aisle and faced the products placed on the shelf, refusing to look at anything else apart from the big cereal box in front of me. The bright yellow, perfect rectangle box directly in front of me was as repelling as everything else in the store. However, it was better than looking at the alternative. I looked down at my shoes and took a couple deep breaths, trying to bring back my breathing to function and my heart to slow down. I could hear shopping carts moving behind me. I slowly tried to collect myself and opened my bag to pull my phone out. The first thing I saw was the battery sign which said 2%. Having lost all sense of adult thinking, like a scared child, I went to the only familiar place I knew. My fingers opened the contacts app on my phone and tapped on my boyfriend's number. I could hear the dial tone start to ring. My eyes became blurry with tears filling up my eyes. Sorry, the caller you are trying to reach is currently unavailable. Please try again later. The ring went all the way through, but he did not pick up the phone. I wiped my tears away. With shaky fingers, I dialed the number one more time. After three rings, the call was cut, and a second later, a text popped on my phone. Don't talk to me. He was still mad from our previous phone conversation and I knew he wouldn't pick up the phone at that moment. I sobbed uncontrollably, and my fingers quickly exited the contact app and swiped the screen till I reached the online cab app. I opened the app and put in my location, then typed the location of my new house as the destination address. The app screen confirmed that my driver was five minutes away. 
I was reading the last four digits of the cab's number played when my phone went blank. My phone had died. This was extremely scary for me, but something else happened that made it seem like a joke in comparison. The sounds of the carts moving stopped as suddenly and as abruptly as the dying of my phone. I gathered all my courage to peek behind my feet. I saw the bottom of a cart facing me, and a little to the left was a pair of shiny black formal men's shoes with another set of wheels belonging to a shopping cart. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't have looked behind me or at anyone in any direction. I had zero courage to do that. I dropped to the floor like a toddler, looking at nothing aside from the floor and the wheels and feet on that floor. I started to move. The cab is still going to be here. I told myself and crawled, dragging myself towards the path I could remember being the correct direction. I kept moving for what felt like an eternity as my tears dropped to the floor. The place was populated with still carts and feet. They were unnaturally still, just like statues. Hours passed, or at least it felt like hours passed. I had no way to tell. I kept dragging my body forward. Finally, I came to a space where the floor felt different. I recognized it as the area from which I originally picked up the cart. That meant I was close to the point of exit. Soon, I reached that automatic door that I had come in from. I moved to the exit and crawled out of the building. After what felt like hours, I finally moved my sore neck up and saw a single car waiting on the road. The black shine was lit up from the front lights of the vehicle. It was easy to spot the car on the road connected to an almost empty parking area with the same two to three cars parked as the ones I had saw earlier when going in. The number plate matched that of the cab I had seen on my phone. Something urged me to look to my left and I saw that same man crouching down. He looked at me. And with speed, he got up and screamed out loud with all the air in his lungs. And equally fast, he ran towards me. That was all I needed to get up and run for my life. The man continued to scream as he ran behind me, closing the distance between us. My feet hit the dark concrete road with me running to the cab, and I quickly entered, shutting the door behind me, locking it. The driver seemed unfazed by the man outside banging on my window and screaming because he said my name, confirming if I was the one who booked the cab. I replied in the affirmative, and he started the cab. I asked the driver if he had a charger cable that would fit my phone type, and fortunately he had one that was the right match. The driver had to take a different route back to my house. When he told me that, I looked at the GPS navigation screen in front of him without looking at his face, confirming that it was, in fact, a route to my apartment. Apparently, a fallen tree blocked the road I came from. I agreed to be taken home from whichever route he could take me. I have my phone charged a good amount now, and I'm almost home. I have shared all this here in order to process what happened to me. 
We've just entered the apartment complex where my apartment is, and the driver is heading towards my building. The ride back home was mostly silent, and the dark, stagnant forest ambience just added to the petrifying experience that has hopefully ended. I just want to get home and lock myself inside. The only thing is, I'm scared. I'm scared that when I get down, I might have to look at the face of the cab driver. I have a feeling, a feeling that I cannot explain. A feeling that tells me that if I look at the driver, he will have a massive anomalous smile on his face. I told my psychologist, Natalie, that I no longer feel obsessed about anyone. Natalie understood because Natalie is very clever and Natalie knows that I feel the urge to kill only when I'm fixating about someone. So Natalie signed my discharge form. Natalie is very clever. Something's wrong with my baby. By Independent Bite 3885. Entry number one. Something is wrong with my baby. I've known it for the 37 years he's been alive that something is wrong with him. I don't know why it's taken so long for me to accept the fact that he isn't and never will be a normal human being. My name is Beatrice, and I'm 59 years old. I live in a small retirement village with my husband, David, who's 63, and is currently suffering from arthritis in his left hand. It's been difficult, but we've learned to live with it. I've been with David since I was 16, and we got married when I was 18. I was a waitress at a very popular Italian restaurant, which is where I first met David. I got pregnant with my son when I was 22. I knew straight away that it wasn't going to be a normal pregnancy, and I was right. At first, it was just a lot of weird food cravings. I know food cravings are normal in pregnancy, but I wasn't craving pickles or tuna with ice cream. I was craving human flesh. It got so bad I couldn't even be in the same room as my husband. I went to several doctors as I was so concerned for myself and the safety of David and the baby. Eventually, the cravings went away, and it moved into an abnormal amount of kicking and bleeding. I bled so much I was forced to give birth a month early. My son, who I named Nathan after my late grandfather, was in the ICU for weeks. I fell in love with a beautiful bundle of joy the moment I heard his cries. David was over the moon, and we both loved Nathan with all our hearts. He never cried, which we bragged about at first. We eventually got a bit concerned about it and took him to a doctor. I can't remember exactly what the doctor said. I also found that when he was being fed, he tended to bite the end of the bottle really aggressively, as if trying to rip the bottle open. When he was a month old, he'd cry and cry all night. I tried to feed him, play with him, and even change his diaper, 
even if there wasn't anything in the previous diaper. David and I stayed up for hours rocking him. Nothing would work. He'd cry and cry until the clock hit exactly 3 a.m. That's when the suspicions started. Entry number two. I never saw Nathan crawling as he got into his toddler stages. He'd be playing with his toys one moment, and then I'd blink and he'd be staring at the window of the neighbor's house. It was like he was teleporting everywhere. I never knew how much denial I was in until now. I loved Nathan so much that I refused to believe something was wrong with him. David had sat me down and tried to convince me to take him to a psychologist or any type of professional, but every time I refused. David, this is our son, whether we like it or not, is what I'd always say to him. Oh, how blind I had been. When he first grew teeth, he couldn't wait to start biting people. I even had to go to the ER after he had bit my arm so hard he drew blood. The bite had almost gotten infected, and it would have ended up with me having a nasty skin infection if I hadn't gone to the ER in time. When I had to return to work, I was originally going to give him to my sister to take care of, but I couldn't do that. I was too afraid. My family, especially my mother, are rather judgy. They have an obsession with keeping up their perfect reputation. If they saw what my son was capable of, they would have been mortified. So, I hesitantly signed him up for a childcare program. That didn't last long. He was only there for 15 minutes until he bit another baby for trying to take the toy he was playing with. The baby who I learned was named Emma had burst into tears. Her mother was not happy at all, and I understood. In the end, my sister had to take care of him. It was the worst day of my life. Nathan had bitten my sister's dog. The poor pup had gotten a nasty infection and later on passed away. My sister was furious. She phoned me at 12 a.m. She was hysterical, yelling and cursing me out. She said my son was evil and needed to be destroyed before harming anyone else. I got angry at her and told her to shut up because my son was just a baby and didn't know any better. Of course, she told our mother. I was pretty much kicked out of the family. I was distraught. My husband was able to calm me down. When Nathan started school, he was even worse. He was expelled from three schools for being horrible to other kids. Little Georgia, he tied her to a pole and threw rocks at her head. She ended up needing 27 stitches in her temple. Daniel, who was curb stomped, the poor thing lost all of their teeth and needed false ones. He was picked on for years to come. George, who was locked in the janitor's closet, he ended up soiling himself. Poor thing. Then there was little Jonathan. Oh God, this destroyed me. Nathan had pushed Jonathan in front of a moving bus. The poor boy had been run over and had to be hospitalized. That's when I knew there was something really wrong with my son. 
I took him to specialist after specialist, but none of them could figure out what was wrong with Nathan. I started to blame myself, wondering how I could make a child so damn evil, so horrible, so mad. My sister was right. I should have gotten rid of him when I had the chance. Entry number three. Hey everyone, my name is David. You might know me as Beatrice's husband. Unfortunately, I have some bad news. Beatrice passed away last night in her sleep. She had been suffering from dementia recently. It had gotten pretty bad. I'm going to miss her, but I'm glad she passed away peacefully. Ever since our son died during childbirth 37 years ago, she hasn't been the same. Somehow she convinced herself that our son is alive and well, but that he's a little demon. I don't know where it came from or how it started, but something about our son's death really changed her. She wasn't the same Beatrice I fell in love with. I will always remember her, as well as the rest of the family. Rest in peace, Beatrice Roselle Button, November 5th, 1964 to July 5th, 2023. As the doctor began tightening the blood pressure cuff around Sarah's arm, he suddenly paused. He gently touched the scar on her neck from the home evasion three years ago and whispered, I knew there was something familiar about you. And with that, our time together is coming to an end. I hope you enjoyed this compilation. Some older stories that you might have missed, but not truly that old. And thank you again to the writers who let me read their stories. Please remember, if you can, rate this podcast, leave me a review. It will really help this podcast go to new people. But if you want to give me some other feedback, you can do that also on my social medias. All the links, including the ones on my Patreon and website, are in the show notes. But thank you everyone for listening. Sleep tight and don't let 42 bite.